1.23 p.m. A crowded subway train starts its run from Pelham Station in the Bronx. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. Four desperate, heavily armed men seize control of the train. The train's been hijacked. You're out of your skull. Millions have read the book. Now you can live this great adventure. The taking of Pelham 123, certificate AA. Now showing at the Leicester Square Theatre, Odeon Marble Arch and Odeon Kensington. Also for Monday at New Victoria. Saturday night movie, <laughs> Sleepover. It's like one of those movies. They didn't know the house was haunted. Or like Overnight, uh, overnight. DJ. Where it's like, all right, you're back. This is Overnight with uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I'm Jay Blake. And I'm Dion Baia. <laughs> We're going to be playing the tunes you love. The you the morning hours. <laughs> you always remember. I... Um, Got to give a shout out. We did all things Titanic a couple weeks ago, and uh, I ended up finding the Telly Savala special that was from Paris, not London. I messed up, and it was amazing. If anybody's still into it, go check it out. Great live special. Telly holds it together. Titanic, baby. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but you know, while watching it, I realized you know I work in uh, news, television news, and you work for reality TV. He did a pretty good job live reading off a prompter, trying to get to. You know, he's on this big stage walking from A to B. You cut to this camera and you walk over to this mark. And he's like <sighs> walking over there <laughs> while trying to reprompt her. It was real exciting. Got right into it. So wholeheartedly recommended on YouTube, courtesy of YouTube. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. No, we're not. We're here to talk about a, a, a big, big, big movie. Uh, so big that uh, it was real inferential. Influential. 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 It got influenza from us. <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if it is big, like if it's still big. I don't know. Because I know, I mean, I guess for people our age, it's got to still be kind of maybe a landmark film for a lot of people that are into cinema that are our age. But I remember after we got out of film school and I was still living in the area and I lived in this house nearby and we would have blow a vet. Yeah, above a vet. above a vet's office, uh, and we would have, we had somebody move in that was. That's still... when you had a detective agency, <laughs> like you were Jessica Fletcher. You lived above a vet, living up in the in the suburbs. You only rode a bike around. The Jay Blake Detective Agency. Yeah, Jay Blake Detective Incorporated. Private Dick. Yeah, for hire. Don't make no jokes, <laughs> baby. And, uh, but so there was a kid that moved in who was younger than us. Who was still at school. He into wasn't the, into the apartment you lived yeah, in. Into, yeah, into the house I was living in. Yeah. Um, and uh, he wasn't in the film program, but he was interested in film and was in like the media arts program or something. He was shit. going to the school we went to, yeah, Burgess yeah, College. Yeah. So I was asking him, I was like, like, what were you guys, like, what are the people that are coming in into now? Because, like, when we got to film school, we were the, and this is why. You know, I feel like there's a lot to talk about with this film just because of the era. Because you and I were like the perfect age for that early 90s independent film boom. Yeah. And I think, at least for me, I I can't talk for you, but for me it was uh, incredibly influential. And Mm. why I probably 
uh, decided to go to film school, like I was saying before we started rolling, if it wasn't for this film and Quentin Tarantino, no matter how I feel about him now, <laughs> yeah, uh, like we would probably wouldn't know each other because I probably wouldn't have tried to go to film school. Yeah. Uh, so I asked the uh, Ray, this kid, and I said, "What are they into now?" Because when we went got to film school, it was uh, you know Tarantino, and some of some of us were into like uh, Kevin Smith movies, or like it was all this early nineties independent film stuff and then of course we you know then we were all into other things like you and i had a a lot of other uh common interests in film other than those things but i think our generation was really influenced to try to go out and do it Mm. because of the films of that that kind of like uh wave of, of independent cinema and he's like well people are into like wes anderson and stuff and i was like oh you know, I guess that makes sense. Like, he's really kind of the next step in one. the... Even the, though, like, he, he's the one that did, like, Bottle Rocket. Yeah, and right? I remember Which Bottle was Rocket around was in the high time. school. Yeah, I, had, I loved you know, Bottle Rocket growing up. But, I mean, I loved Bottle Rocket. I loved Rushmore, because Rushmore, that was when we were still in high school. Yeah, yeah. And then I kind of fell off of him. People... Rushmore might have been when we got to college. Because oh, I remember seeing it with all my f- high school friends. You might have been home. Yeah, the weekend or something because I think that came out while we were in film school. But Bottle Rocket was kind of part of that. It was definitely a I had reaction, that on like a, a SLP tape that was like the last movie <laughs> on a tape. Bottle Rocket. I mean, there. Yeah, because <clears throat> you had like 1992, the class of 1992, like Sundance. Yeah, uh, which was where Dogs was in, and then of course, um, you know, other films of 1992 were uh, El Mariachi. Just before that, you had Slacker, uh, and. Uh, the Coen brothers were still kind of a big thing. They had Barton Fink in 1991, and then El Mariachi, Reservoir Dogs in 1992. And then by 1994, you had Clerks. Uh, Quentin Tarantino followed up Reservoir Dogs in 1994 with Pulp Fiction, yeah. which kind of blew the doors open on like everything. Yeah. Uh, and then there was a lot of, like I feel like, reactionary things that came to ex- exist because of the bankability of the the independent boom. Yeah. So then you get like usual suspects and swingers yeah. and then probably bottle rockets probably in that bunch. I don't know what year that came out, but I remember there was a lot of comparisons with that and things like Reservoir Dogs because it is a heist movie, right? I think so. I haven't seen it in a really long time. I remember liking it a lot. Yeah, I, I remember loving it, it, but I I don't I don't think I've seen it since I've I've had it on that videotape. I mean, between 90 I guess if Pulp Fiction is 94, between that and 97, we went into graduate high school and went into college. There were so many independent movies, but then there was also the imitators that were Yeah, yeah. Which you were, had like Love and a 45. Yeah, you had a lot all of good like stuff. The Pulp Fiction kind of. Your rip-offs or Reservoir Dog rip-offs or homages or, or maybe there are other films that because those movies did good, they're kind of the same. You know, maybe they're unfairly compared to as a ripoff, but they could have been sitting and stagnant, but then they got a green light because these were successful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it ended when... And then you had, like, on the other side, you had, like, Hal Hartley. You had, like, those intellectuals. Oh, sure, yeah. Remember, you had was... Smoke with Harvey Keitel, and they mm-hmm. had everybody... And then I never saw the sequel, I don't think. But you had a lot of those talking movies. Yeah, um, yeah. And then uh, you had, like, just call, so, like, cigarettes and coffee. Sure, you know? and, like, Jim Jarmusch yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. That's, that's so it was, a, like, it was a very exciting time for... What, what can be considered low budget cinema? I mean, it depends on how you want to f- characterize low budget cinema. <laughs> I think you know maybe like with the Coen Brothers, but more with Jim Jarmusch, where they'd been around in the eighties, like 
Jim Jarmuth did like down by law and stuff. But I think because of this boom, this door opened, it gave those people more, you know, to be able to do these kind of movies that you get like Ghost Dog. Yeah. You get, I like, mean, there yeah. was like, for people that are younger or older or just don't remember it, I mean, there was a, like an electricity in the air. <laughs> you had that. hope that you'd be able to make, do something with yourself. <laughs> you know, it was exciting. It, it was an exciting well, it time. It practical and almost like, you know, I remember it's, it. Yeah. You know, we sound so old when we talk like this, but I just it's, it's, it was just such a different time that we kind of saw the the turn, like like you know our generation saw like analog to digital trans transformation with you know like uh, landline phones and rotary <coughs> yeah, phones yeah. and TV and then people getting cable and computers coming in and then in the early two thousands cell phone and the internet taking over. But we also saw then when we were in film school. You know, the analog, everything's shot on film, everything's cut linearly, physically with your hands. But then while we became juniors and seniors, it was going the way of digital. Everything was getting cut on Avids or computer programs where now... I don't think it's rare that people shoot on film. I don't think they call it. Anybody shoot. Yeah, well, because on a it's flatbed anymore. Yeah, because it's also impractical. It's hugely expensive. Um, the places to get the film developed and, <coughs> and processed are, are dying in the city. And then you can just do all that on your on whatever thing you have, and you can upload it to your computer. And then you can. I mean, you think about freshman year of college, and we all had to chip in for our senior films where. Me, you, and two other people, four way, we split an Avid, which was like a uh, an editing, yeah, physical yeah. editing software. We can edit our films, and we had it in our apartment. And then, you know, us doing that compared to like you know freshmen or juniors today, where they're just having on a laptop, they can sit in like you know the cafeteria at college, sip on a freaking latte, and be yeah. cutting their movie with yeah. headphones on. I mean, it was crazy. I you mean, it, the te- the advancement of technology uh, has been great, and I think not great. Yeah, for exactly. Film. I remember us in, uh, driving around in college. Uh, you know, we were talking about the, you know, um, Lucas is coming back and he's doing a hundred percent digital Star Wars movie. This is poppycock. <laughs> How dare he invent a camera to be? You know, and and it, that has its pros and cons. I mean, you know, I used to think it was horrible, but then when I used to watch. There's some Michael Mann movies like Collateral and Aspects of Miami Vice, which I think are absolutely beautiful because he's able, you can only get certain exposures with a digital camera. Yeah, yeah. So my point of this long-winded diatribe is that, that when we went to college, it seemed it was possible by seeing these movies. We were doing movies in our house in our basement. And then you see, because it was still like we can understand what we, the process going into it. And we'd watch behind the scenes stuff. It's like, oh, that doesn't look all that hard. Yeah, yeah. And we did it in college to a certain extent. With we we put out what four short films. Yeah. You know, of of various degrees of genre or whatever. So you know, it was of that era where, you know, it's like I guess much like people in the seventies with with you know um, Coppola and Scorsese and and De Palma and all those guys coming out. That like people are like, oh, look, you can do it post-studio system you could do it on your own yeah and then with us in the 90s it's like oh not only can you do it you could see these people who are like us nerds like a kevin smith sure or movie geeks like a quentin tarantino or a kevin smith and they're able to well that's the thing you know we write talk, something and make it we talk a lot about uh you know the vid like the video store generation you know uh trademark yeah <laughs> Yeah, I've <laughs> trade trademark in that. And we had a we had a guy. Uh, we're like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith and and uh, Robert Rodriguez. Like those guys were, you know, probably like the first wave of filmmakers of the video store generation. Yeah, guys that could sit there and watch films 
over and over again because of home video and so that's why you you watch those you watch reservoir dogs and you el mariachi and you see like a lot of influences not to say that filmmakers weren't always influenced by other filmmakers but there was there's something about like the excess of repeat viewing well it's all it's like the availability too i mean in the old days we've we've talked about many times where you know prior to home video people really didn't get access to their favorite movies unless it was another format like a book yeah. or a soundtrack a record or hoping to see it in rerun on television or or like a, f- a five minute cut of it on yeah, eight, millimeter. eight millimeter or hoping for a revival in the cinema so when you have you know when you're not you don't have the uh, accessibility to like a, a a film print of it to screen yourself it does get harder for people that's why you find out people went to see this movie like 30 times when it was there because that was the only time they were able to see it but then when you get into our lifespan and people having access to videos as well as access to like a library of films like a video store has yeah. you have all this accessibility to study different things and also uh you have stuff available to you that you probably wouldn't have never had availability to prior to that or would have thought of watching because you have different sections and genres in a video store. And the uh, the listeners today have a great um, uh, nuance because you and I both worked at a video store. So we have that like yeah. aspect where we, you know, we, we firsthand, <clears throat> I mean, I worked for, I don't know, three years or so at a video store and it was like the best job I've ever had because yeah, you can yeah. put on what you want and you recommended movies to people and you have a say of your employee pick section and <laughs> who you want on the end caps, what, what movies you want to, you know, the actors or directors you want to profile and it's so, yeah. you know, and, and, and I remember going to the video store growing up and my local video store was Tommy K's in Connecticut and I remember like looking at these people and thinking like, you know, the people who worked at the video store, like, well, these guys are so cool. They know their stuff. They're like, they're all intellectuals. You know, they all look like Yaleys, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, a couple of years later, when I get out of high school, I end up working there. And it's like, uh, you know, now, now I'm like, oh, they're not, they're none of that. I just looked up that to them because it, it was the, you know, breaking the fourth wall yeah, almost, yeah. you know, so. And, you know, and that's like Quentin Tarantino's stories very much attached to being a guy that worked at a video store and just watched a lot of movies. Um, you know, I probably didn't see this movie in 1992. I honestly probably didn't see this movie until after the success of Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we talked a little bit in uh, a couple of, in many podcasts, but recently I think in Wayne's World and and stuff about, uh, you know, taking a video camera and making movies with your friends. Yeah. Big deal for you and I. Yeah, big deal for you and I. And, and aside from something like To Kill a Ninja, which has captured the imagination of a lot of people in, <laughs> that, that I talk to and people on Twitter, uh, people even got a tweet that somebody wants to remake To Kill a Ninja. Well, and then give them background <laughs> of what To Kill a Ninja was. The epic. To Kill a Ninja was the first film that I made with my first video uh, movie that I made with my friends. And, uh, I think it was me and Pete, my buddy Pete. We were bounty hunters in the thick of the woods hunting down a ninja played by our friend Paul. Sweet. And uh, that was that. But shortly after that, um, we went through a huge crime drama phase. Yeah. I mean, and that was fueled directly by uh, a, a, a love that we were, that was growing between us and, and the films of Quentin Tarantino and then. Uh, Martin Scorsese movies and stuff like that. So we even had, we did like a 
movie called Hodgepodge. As oh, I remember the, Hodgepodge. Which was kind of our Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, we did some other movie. It's funny because I was just recently uh, exchanging a couple emails with uh, Chuck, who was part of that group. Uh, High school friends. Yeah, which I don't talk to any of those guys really anymore. Um, there's no real reason behind it. Just you drift, you fall, you drift away. You yeah, know, yeah. You, you, you. But uh, every once in a while, I, I'll email with chuck and we were just reminiscing about the old days and he pointed out that there was some movie and i can't remember the name of it now but there was some movie which which was like maybe the third or fourth movie i made with them where we it was like our version of pulp fiction and we hadn't even seen pulp fiction (laughs) no that's an interesting road to go down because i remember um for me my upbringing was i was around the time of like you know geraldo with al capone's vault and then Brian De Palma's Untouchables came out, I became a big gangster movie fan. And that's yeah. when I watched like early gangster cinema and heist films of the 40s and 50s. You know, and then I was exposed to stuff. And then getting into the 90s, it's like I remember Reservoir Dogs being on pay-per-view and me catching a scene of like these guys in suits like yelling at somebody in a chair. And then I didn't, and then that was all I remember of it. So I didn't know if that was just a scene or if the, I didn't know the context of it. And then... Like a year or two later, I remember being in the cinema, seeing a, a preview for Pulp Fiction, saying this movie looks so weird, not really interested. But then my dad was like, a couple weeks later, was like, hey, come on, let's go to see the movie. You take one of your friends. And I took a friend of mine, and I had to convince him to come. Because he's like, I don't know, it kind of looks stupid. And I was like, no, I think it's, it's the buzz is, like I'm telling you that back then. Like it's supposed to be <laughs> pretty good. The buzz is great. Yeah, I, you know, if you look at the variety, all the trades, they say it's really great. So I remember I was going, and as soon as we got into the theater, probably like within the first scene or so, Pulp Fiction, you realize there that this is going to be good. This Something's is going on. Yeah, yeah, and it was completely like, you know, it's like you're watching... You know, it's kind of like, I guess I can equate it to seeing a movie on opening night. You know, when you see, like, I saw Jurassic Park or Terminator 2. It's like, you you know, something's going on. And that's how Pulp Fiction was. And then I remember, uh, for me personally, the horrible, I thought, ad campaign for True Romance where I remember seeing commercials for it. And I'm like, this looks like just a romance movie. It's like, this doesn't appeal to me at all. But then after seeing Pulp Fiction, I went back to see what this other guy did. I saw Reservoir Dogs, saw Pulp Fiction, and then physically viewing them. Um, my friend and I, Martin, we uh, who I saw Pulp Fiction with, we did a double feature on a, on a night. He slept over, we rented Easy Rider, and then we rented uh, Reservoir Dogs, both movies we hadn't seen. I guess that's kind of exemplified of like independent movies sure, yeah. of the era. So we did Easy Rider. We, we made a movie in the basement. We, we were making fun of our social studies teacher in high school. <laughs> and we had purchased, because music was big for us, the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. So yeah. we, we played Jungle Boogie on in the background, and it's him annoying coming into class. And I'm the teacher like, you got to turn that Jungle Boogie off. You know, and then uh, after we got you know, bored of making, you know, Saturday Night Live skits. We uh, sat down in, in our basement and we watched Easy Rider first and it bored the shit out of us. You know, only a couple scenes really held our interest, but we're like, okay, people love this movie, but, you know, it's really... Yeah, yeah. And then the second one was Reservoir Dogs and we loved it, you know? It was like, it was like, holy shit, this movie is insane. I mean, it was, like I said, we were... People around our age, we were like the perfect... We were the perfect age... For that to be so influential. Yeah. You know, like, our, we were young. We were impressionable. And what was popular, too. <clears throat> I mean, you know, Goodfellas was huge. I mean, Godfather 3 kind of came out. So you had gangster movies in the psyche. Yeah. Uh, you know, for myself, I was huge. I had known uh, there's a Stanley Kubrick movie called The Killing. 
which has similarities to this, which I was a huge fan of at the time because I loved Kubrick because of The Shining. Yeah, I was a big yeah. Shining fan as a kid. So then I went and f- like looked at his other stuff. Uh, and I was a big Cagney fan, so White Heat was big for me. So these heist films I had seen, like The Asphalt Jungle, when I saw this, I was like, this is because you, you know, I'm sure if you look at it now, you can probably think of like Michael Mann was doing heist films. But it's like I couldn't think of like popular heist films back then. You know what I mean? Yeah. So to see something like this was just so new and odd and, you know, it had character, people you knew and it was just, it was so different. But and then it's like a stage play. Like nothing really happens in it, you know? No, I mean, it definitely could be a play. I mean, it's, it's one of those movies when we, do, when we talked about breakfast club oh yeah that's yeah. another film that like could definitely be a stage play and i'm sure that, that <clears throat> as we, we we looked on the internet people have done productions of reservoir dogs yeah. as a stage play and uh, even there's a point where we could talk later where they they recast it at one of those script readings with all african-american actors and i think that's such a great idea yeah, yeah. because i think that just lends a whole different uh thing to it and tarantino i mean i loved you know, it was so new and fresh at the time, the dialogue, and I was a big music fan, so it was great to then, in conjunction, you know, with going to see the movie, you can go out and buy the dope-ass soundtrack that was awesome, sure. you know, and Pulp Fiction had a soundtrack I picked up on. As soon as I saw Reservoir Dogs, I went and found that soundtrack, and then, you know, uh, other movies, like the, then the Rodriguez movies were coming out that had soundtracks, and then, like... Uh, you know, you have like the Get Shorty had a great soundtrack, so you, then you start getting the soundtracks, yeah, you know, yeah. and that was that was half of it for me was you know like what Scorsese would do he had great soundtracks for Goodfellas at Casino so I that always always been a big thing with me music and film so that hit upon me so it was just you're right it was hitting on all the the right cylinders for me and for like a generation that was just so uh, amazing and I guess it just was inspiring you're like you know you, we, we thought we could do stuff like that yeah, but boy really- were we wrong <laughs> <laughs> well you know there's this thing and I, <clears throat> I, for, uh, I apologize if it's been brought up in previous podcasts and but when I did uh, when I did my book Scored to Death where I interviewed a bunch of composers I was talking to a composer named Simon Boswell who's a British composer who worked a lot in the Italian horror genre for some reason he met Dario Argento per chance and then did did a piece of music or two for Phenomena da, 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 da. No, and then uh, and then he continued to work in Italian horror films and he, he scored uh, Demons 2 for Lamberto Bava which was produced by Argento but uh, <clears throat> so we're talking and, and you know he was a musician and uh he came from like a pop back or pop and, and rock background and then just kind of got flung into this era uh, this uh, job of creating music for film and so talking about his background and stuff and i said well did, did you go to school for it or anything and he said no and i actually take like great pride in the fact that i didn't i think if you want to be a composer the worst thing in the world is to go to school for it and uh, he said, I went to school for English. And so he's like, and I'll get, I'll get into it more later. So later on, we're talking. And I was like, I need you to, like, let's talk about why. You said, you know, let's, let's circle back. Why is it such a bad thing? And he said, every musician that he knew that went to school for music uh, ends up, ended up, like, playing in an orchestra or stuff like that. But they didn't write mm. because... There's something about like if there's something there's this beauty of like ignorance is bliss, you know. And once you get educated on it and you realize how fucking hard it is, <laughs> there's this fear 
to, to just go for it. So he was saying that because he was just ignorant to the fact that he couldn't, there was no way in the world he could write like classical music yeah. or write music uh, for film where, you know, he would never be Strauss or Chopin or whatever. Like that, that's impossible. He didn't know that. So he just was able to do it. And everybody he went knows that he's friends with that went to music school took that and got classically trained. None of them went into composing. They all just kind of read music and play it. Session yeah. players. And I feel like that is, at least for me, I, you know, I can only talk for myself. That is a big one. He said that, and I was like, yeah, like that's that's true. You know, it's true for me, for sure. Like going to film school in a lot of ways was like the worst thing I well, You know, <laughs> there's, there's a huge um, dichotomy here if we start talking about our film school experience where – uh, off the bat, the job I work in now, which I said was television news uh, on the tech side, uh, I'll make an omission that I hope my parents never hear, but I didn't need to go to college at all for this. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that was kind of a waste. But on the other side is you and I went to such a great school at the time that, you know, SUNY Purchase at the time, it was, it was held in such a high regard. Yeah. It was kind of like the... At the, the time, it was quite literally the best undergraduate film program. In the country, and it was probably the only conservatory. It was the only. Film. It was the only undergraduate film conservatory, and it was probably the best undergraduate film school. And of course, you know, then if you get to the graduate level, you get like the USC, UCLA, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, NYU stuff like that that are more prestigious and blah blah blah. But for undergraduate, we probably went to the best film school at the time. Yeah. a lot of things have changed since. I mean, then. but then there was a there was a really um, hard uh, audition process where you had to submit stuff they wanted a scene they wanted an essay and then when we get then if you got an um a uh what do you call that an interview, interview yeah. you go down there and then I, I think it was like 250 people were applying a year and they were only picking like 20 yeah or so it was really prestigious and then at, after, at the end of every year they would have a uh, a review and they would look at the work you accomplished and then they would basically decide if you were going to excel in the program or they're going to ask you to leave that you don't, they don't think you're making yeah. any progress like they would just kick you out yeah and i remember a couple people were kicked out of the program when yeah. we were there so that was always the apparently big they, kick, they would kick more people out in previous years yeah well they kicked they a couple to, people out but our they first, did our, but they did kick people out or yeah. freshman and sophomore year some people and i were got kicked put on out. probation after the first year <laughs> did you i got i got in trouble because somebody thought i was drunk in class but that was but that was a completely different thing but um but so our school, SUNY Purchase, was at the time was kind of like the poor man's NYU because, yeah. you know, if you went to like a school like NYU, it was all theory and they weren't even touching equipment until like sophomore or junior year where uh, freshman year, they, and then they also said to us in the interviews, you have to understand what you're getting into here. You're going to just have a, uh, whatever your major is, uh, that is going to be your focused, uh, you know, center. You won't be learning math or whatever. So that was an allure for me because I didn't really want to yeah, learn yeah, anything else. <laughs> no, I mean, like, you know, I mean, because you had, you had like, uh, I forget what you call them now, prerequisites or yeah, required you need, classes. You needed to have like one, you basically, for the most part, had to have, had to have like one class a semester that wasn't your major from, just to get enough credits but that to graduate. Was, but that's only like, but you could do anything. Yeah. And that was, you think about people who were undeclared in our school, as well as people who went to other film schools, you still had to take, you know, um, probably math, foreign language, uh, economics or whatever, where, where ours was just, we were studying the the film theory yeah. and craft but then like literally nine ninety percent of our credits to graduate came from 
film. Our major. Our major. Yeah. yeah. And then as well as we were already getting introduced to like film equipment and, you know, we were doing scenes, we were videotaping, we were acting. And then by the end of the year, we were making a freshman film. Yeah. You're you shooting know. on 16 millimeter. Yeah. With Bolexes and uh, stuff that, you know, they used back as far back as like World War II, those wind up cameras and stuff. And so by the end of the freshman year, we all had to have a film made. You know, either be black and white or color, or if it had sound, if it didn't have sound. Uh, and that's a feat that you don't really see in a lot of places. Yeah, so we yeah. kind of felt like we were, you know, participating in that independent film boom. We're like, this is how they're doing it. You know, this is yeah. how they're, these guys have gone out and making movies. And today, I think that's completely lost on people who you can take your iPhone out and you can make a movie on your phone and send it and you can do stuff where... It was so hard, you know, you, you forget using a video camera that your parents owned. Now we're using, like, lights and stuff, and, yeah, you know, it's just a completely different animal. I mean, there's, you know, I had a love-hate relationship with it. Um, with making I, film or the class, school? With the, or the whole process? The, the school and the whole process. I mean, I loved learning about it, but I do think it was a deterrent. I don't think we got as much practical advice and and uh practical advice and instruction about certain things i mean it was definitely an art school so there was no focus on the business end of it um yeah that's and and i also took it upon myself to make the most of it and i feel like a lot of people didn't that we that we went to school with like I shot a shitload of stuff. Like I wanted to learn how to do it. I really was there to learn how to do everything. Yeah. And so I ended up graduating with like a double major in directing and cinematography because I ended up shooting enough films to qualify for. for yeah. And I directed my own film, so I, I really enjoyed the shooting aspect of it. Uh, shooting film, anyway. Uh, it, there's there's like a beauty. And uh, in the process of shooting film that doesn't exist with digital. Uh, and I like that a lot. And then I ended up becoming an editor right out of school uh, because I enjoyed that. I mean, I, I really wanted to learn everything. And for that, I it was great. I did that. But it was like I had to I had to have a discipline to do that and you also because there was a lot of people that we went to school with that i don't think really learned anything yeah i mean and you also <laughs> they were there they were there to i i, I caught, categorize it as like there there's there's two kinds of people that go to the film program there's the kind of people that go there to make their movies yeah which you could do that on your own and then there's the people that go there to learn how to make movies yeah and I felt like there were a lot of people that we went to school there that went there to just to make their movies and weren't there to learn how to do it. And I kind of took the other route in that I wanted to learn every aspect of the process. Yeah. And you had to kind of push for that, too, to get the, the, the director of photography uh, degree. You yeah, because there was a thing when you graduated. I mean, in a nutshell, like you could either direct your own film at the end of, the, at the end of your stint of your four years and then get your degree as a in directing film, or if you found that you had a, an aptitude and you liked shooting, you could sh- like shoot five films for other students, be the director of photography on five films, and then just shoot a scene of your own stuff, like one scene. Yeah. But I ended up shooting five films, shot my own film. Yeah. And directed my own. Yeah, <laughs> really you directed shot, my you own. shot mine. Yeah, I you shot did. your film. I shot. I shot like five or six films that year. Yeah. So I ended up kind of getting enough 
uh, to be to have both. Yeah, stressful Blake. Those are stressful times. Those were fucking stressful times. Yeah, yeah. but it was. It, but it's that's the aspect I loved about film school. Where, as much as I say we didn't need it for what we do now, it's like you did get a theory, you did get the aptitude. It did open me up to a lot more stuff I ne- I would would never have seen. But then, much like you say, it's kind of like there is a certain degree of like having your head up in the clouds there, where yeah. they don't really. You know, they're like, okay, here's your piece of paper, your degree, and then you have the shitload of college debt as well as, you know, you had to pay for all your film that we were yeah, shooting yeah. on in the and the processing. And it's an expensive thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my senior film, I think, costs like over 10 grand to make. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, you, you're, 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 you're not paying the actors, but you're using professional actors and you have to pay their way, you have to pay for their food, you have to, you know, uh, any kind of other services. There's a budget for your film you have to provide for, you have to provide for everything on that end. So when you get out of school, they don't, they give you a degree, and then you don't really—they don't really give you any advice of how to get into the industry. There's no kind of at the time <laughs> there was no program to like. Okay, all you guys are gonna—we're gonna start giving you references, or we're gonna try to put you in at this company. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, goodbye. It's like you're getting kicked out of your parents' house. <laughs> it's like the jerk, you know, like they're leaving the cabin. Yeah, and I it's mean, like they were helpful in helping for me anyway. They were helpful in finding work, but not the kind of work not to help make a movie. But anyway, I mean, this is a <clears throat> kind of got off on a on a. We're venting. <laughs> yeah. We got off on a venting tangent. And the, and the last note of that is that the, well, we know a lot of people who just went home and didn't do anything with their degree. Yeah. Because it's just, you go home and you move back into your parents' basement or whatever, and you have a lot of debt, and then you, you know, you're you stuck up in upstate or wherever the hell you came from. And then it's like, you got to stay close to like New York City or a, a city that has a yeah. a film industry in it, like if LA or San Francisco. And yeah. Then, and it's just a lot of things had changed for the, it was amazing how much stuff had changed from when we started to when we were leaving. Yeah. I Even mean, the, the, the technology business. and the business. Because yeah, when we got them, out, we didn't know what the hell to do because it was making that digital changeover. Yeah. Now everybody's shooting on like crappy DV. I mean, it wasn't even the DV technology wasn't even there yet. And people were trying to make anyway. I, I mean, this is a, I apologize for the tangent, but I mean, it is all kind of for us. It's all very close to the vest. I mean, it's all part of it. Uh, of this, I mean, we're talking about Reservoir Dogs today, and and uh, this it, kind of got the tangent got we got on it because of kind of the importance of this movie to us. You know, since since this, since film school, blah blah blah. I mean, it has things have changed a lot. Tastes change. We grow up. We have different tastes and uh, in, in stuff that we had then just because just because of sheer uh, life experience and age and thing you know you just start to and you just get experienced to more stuff and you start to you know you start to experience more things um, but watching this now watching Reservoir Dogs uh, today was like this weird flashback you know back in you know it's it is a very it was a very important film. Uh, I do still enjoy this one. I, I went through an anti Quentin Tarantino phase. Well, you kind of when you went to film school, you kind of turned your back on some of your because you found horror, and you kind of like you know you excelled that way. Yeah. So yeah. you were kind of anti. You're almost like you know like when you're like a kid and your parent you go rebel against your parents. You know <laughs> when you got to film school, you kind of turned your back well, on them, those of, movies. There was a lot of eye we, the high school movies we liked, the mob movies. And yeah, stuff. yeah. It was. You know, I will say that it, I will give. You'd have stronger opinions than I would. I kind of yeah. kept everything. And more a lot endearing. of that was an immaturity. Uh, you, know, you know, I've come to 
there was a period there where I became really snobby about stuff and I, and I had very strong opinions that whether right or wrong. Uh, and I was very vocal about them. Um, but you know, college is, uh, is a time for you to be introduced to new things. Experiment, and, man. <laughs> and I, and I embraced it. Yeah, you know? of course. I was, I, I was into horror movies, but then college is when I really embraced them. And that was rebellion. I, I, you know, I, I don't think I knew that at the time, and, and I don't think in any kind of uh, conscious way, and the embracing of horror movies during our film school years. But looking back on it, it had to be. Oh, well, you, you look it at it. It had to be like a rebellion. Where, where, where we were in the film school, and then where we were in our, within our class and the people that were there, you got a lot of people who were very kind of elitist, and they sure. had their idea of what they liked and didn't like, and they were very vocal about it. So they would look down on a lot of things, and sometimes undeservedly so. So yeah, yeah. stuff like this, where it's like, no, you know, you shouldn't look down and say a horror, but then you praise some yeah, filmmaker yeah. that is making you know films for you know. Uh, but the the beautiful thing about going to school in such an intense program like that is meeting. Being in the thick of the shit yeah. with other people. Other enthusiasts. And so you start, just through conversing, you start to get in, not, aside from just being shown things for school. Yeah. You know, having a class a semester where all we did was watch movies and analyze them. Uh, aside from that, some of the biggest influences come from your fellow classmates. Yeah. Just talking about things that you like, what you've seen, showing each other stuff. And so it was a very... Uh, fertile time uh, for me intellectually uh, and educationally in that sense. And so there was just so much to explore that, you know, I, you're right. I probably, I did kind of, I think, turn my back on, on some of the stuff that got me there in the first place, but it was only because it was like, you know, Willy Wonka opening up the, yeah, the little door. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. It's a little Come on one side of with this. me. And you're eating everything. <laughs> in a world of pure imagination. It was like, oh my God, there was this whole world of imagination yeah. that I never, I, I didn't even really know existed. And, and uh, it was a really great and beautiful time. It's that stuff I look back on those times as uh, very fondly. And, and of course, those are the things that made me who I am now. Like I rem- I was, you know, uh, conversing with somebody on Twitter who's 19 and very into cinema and horror movies and stuff. And uh, I just said to her, I said, I'm so like, I'm jealous of you because the movies that you fall in love with right now are going to be the movies that you love for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like you don't know it. <laughs> But that's the way this is going to be. So odd, Like, you too. don't realize that within the next couple of years, the movies that you fall passionately in love with will shape who you are for the rest of your and life. And it seems like there's so much more shit out there now. There's just so much more of a gluttony of it. You know, there's just, like, when we, when we were at that age, at that time, there was much more, like, you know, almost like, like tent poles of movies yeah. or flag posts. These are, you know, but now it's just there's so much out there. There's so much to disseminate. You know, you live in a world where you have 5,000 television channels and you have, you know, YouTube, you have the internet, you can do whatever you want, watch whatever you want. So it's like, it's so hard to, there's going to be so many eclectic, diverse tastes going forward. Yeah, that, yeah. So when you get to film school, I don't even know, you know, if people, are they going to be still taught the stuff we were about? You know, is it going to be much more important as important to talk about people like 
Scorsese or the older people like a Howard Hawks or, you know, uh, um, the old big time directors like an Orson Welles? Or is it people now going to that's going to emphasize there was an older generation doing shit yeah, but you need yeah. to know about quentin tarantino and you need to know about you know freaking kevin smith or is yeah, it more yeah. gonna be an emphasis on you know so yeah yeah i mean that's a really good point um i mean but for it's me it's like a paradigm shift but the kind of the point i was making was like i did go through like an anti-tarantino phase uh in college definitely post-college uh, Which I did too, and yeah. I still do. Yeah, yeah. Like I certainly I now, hold strong opinions on them. Now I'm just kind of like indifferent. Yeah. For me now, it's like as I've matured, it's like why not like something, you know? Like or why talk? You know why be vocal about that? Like in maturity, I've just been like, it's all good, baby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's all good, baby. Like everybody can like their thing. Yeah. Everybody's got their little thing. It's all right. Just come on in over here. Um, and I, you know, and I enjoyed <laughs> some of the more recent stuff, but there's definitely this, he has a style and God bless him. I mean, it's what makes him, him. And, but there was this early nineties, very talky way of writing for cinema. You hear it in Kevin Smith's movies. Yeah. You hear it in Quentin Tarantino's movies, this waxing poetically about pop culture. Uh, and then you had all these side movies that came out in response to that, that you had that happen. You know, and Reservoir Dogs is like the perfect, you know, it opens with it. Yeah. This discussion about like a virgin. And I was like, oh yeah. Like yeah. this is what movies were like in 1990. This is what independent movies were like in 1992. People just talking about fucking nothing. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it has no really. Uh, and it's why I. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's also it's why like that movie Juno came out was a big splash or whatever. That I forget the woman who that wrote that movie. Yeah, I and like she's gone on to write stuff. She wrote that movie like Jennifer's Body or something. The one. With, oh yeah, with I the, tried to watch that and I just turned it off because I was like, this is a style of script writing that i'm just like not interested anymore i don't yeah. there's nothing it's nothing wrong with it but you know conversations about who's the king of gore dario argento or hershel gordon lewis and juno it's like like this what this i've never seen was this one. movie written in 1990 well, that, that's another interesting thing where you know it's you're hammered you have all these again i don't want to say elitist but people like like at a, at a, a authoritative kind of like position to you and you write a script that say has some of this and then they'll tell you you can't do this this is this has no relevance on the plot you gotta have the plot move it's gotta be tight and then you look back at these movies and you have complete conversations and scenes that have no bearing on plot maybe maybe you can make an argument for character development sure but it's like you know now you, you learn that like shit has to be lean you know everything has to go like we talk about perfect scripts where like you know there's not a oh, shot yeah, yeah. or a word that isn't well i think there's know, some of that we were talking about it with slap shot yeah, you know, there's scenes that like in the they were seven. It was the '70s, and there was stuff like those scenes wouldn't make it into it. Yeah, I was just having a conversation the other night. Well, the entire Forty uh, Three Union now of Smoking the Bandit because yeah, it turns yeah. forty this year. Like the entire movie's that. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> but it's great. You know. Yeah, I mean, but you had a time where you had people. We were being taught that this is the way you do it, but we're like, but yeah. we're looking at our heroes are doing it a completely different way. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think there is a. There's something to be said for, like, you have to know the rules before you can break them kind yeah. of thing. Uh, but it was the, that early 90s talking at excess about 
stuff about yeah. you know intellectualism or yeah intellectuals or just or, yeah or just pop culture it was a thing i mean like i said smith does it and and it's the and it's those things that turn me off about those filmmakers films now when that happens well they're still kind of doing it yeah because they're you still know? doing it and that's their style and that's totally fine and there's people that love that about their movies but for me it was just something that i kind of um graduated past yeah you know and it's just like oh like when i saw uh red state which is uh yeah kevin, uh, smith. kevin smith movie uh i was there's it was great until like then there's like this last scene where i think it's like john goodman and there's a there's a dialogue scene at the end of it and then not that that scene is bad or that the movie's bad or anything but it was like it was like it was a harsh reminder, like, oh yeah, this is a Kevin Smith movie. <laughs> he has a very specific style of writing dialogue, yeah, yeah. and it's his thing. Yeah, and that's totally fine. Uh, but it's a very interesting. I wonder why that style of of dialogue writing, like, what was what was going on? It would be an interesting study to try to figure out, like, what was going on that that style of dialogue became a thing in the 90s. Why did these writers, filmmakers, gra- like gravitate towards that? Well, you had a lot of stuff going on, like a, a, a favorite of mine, it's Robert Altman film Shortcuts. Sure. So you had stuff like, you know, where they, they'd have these little vignettes put together that was all talk, or you have like Glenn Glary, Glenn Ross. You know, so you have like a lot of stuff coming out. You know, in the but late 80s there's, and 90s. there's a difference between a lot of dialogue and the kind of. Dialogue. Oh yeah, where it's just. I mean, you could yeah. look at like a movie like A Dinner with Ed Andre. Yeah, 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 where, yeah. Like that's just two guys sitting around having dinner. Yeah, or, yeah, about. or like <laughs> coffee and cigarettes, or cigarettes and whatever the hell it was. Yeah, yeah, where they're just it's just about nothing. So it's yeah, and then you got those like you know smoke. I think the entire movie takes place in a smoke shop of like a cigar store that Harvey Keitel owns in Brooklyn. It's yeah, like yeah. them just talking about stuff, and it's just. And it's such a forgotten era of like watching black and white films, you know. And, a, oh, yeah. you know. and then, you know, another <laughs> filmmaker that we should at least acknowledge, which completely, I don't know why, I slipped through the ground. I mean, you had like Spike Lee was oh, Spike Lee's also huge part of the time. Of, yeah, part yeah. of that. Uh, yeah, he's in the, he, in the 80s, but she's got to have it and, and, and going into like um, do the right thing and all that. And he's doing the same. And he's influenced, it looks like, as well as right out of Scorsese. He's, he's doing a lot of stuff out of Scorsese's playbook and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. And he's he's huge into that, too. And you have a lot of people who just, you know, all successful and stuff doing things. And I think it coalesces into this movement of, I, I think, what, especially with Reservoir Dogs, what was popular at the time was, like, the crime gangsters and then doing a movie that was so unique where, you know, you don't see the robbery. And that's kind of ingenious, but at the same yeah. time, it's a, they did it for budgetary restrictions, but it becomes... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like again Glengarry and Glen Ross. You don't see this robbery that happens, and it's robbery. And <laughs> it's robbery is wow, right? Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Um, and well, so I mean, Abel. Think of like a movie like The King of New York. Yeah, you know, like you know, Abel Ferrara. I mean, it was a big, yeah, exciting time, of course, uh, for this kind of cinema. Yeah, you know, all um, over but space. I would <clears> say <throat> that you know, aside from the, the the dialogue aspect of it, which is the thing that how, that it, uh, hinders my ability to really get into some of Tarantino's later movies. That's why, like, I love Kill Bill Part One, but I uh, Kill Bill Part Two is a little bit of a chore for me to watch because that's just like nobody talks in Kill Bill. <laughs> I want to see the cut, the, and then the and then cut. in Kill Bill Part Two, it's a lot of talking about how Superman is Clark Kent and yada yada yada. Yeah. And you're like, oh yeah, this I forgot this was Quentin Tarantino. Uh, but I will say, not that he invented it, but this I, this style of, at least for me, he like introduced me to this style of like nonlinear storytelling in cinema. Yeah, um, and, that, and that was huge. I mean, that was a huge part of it. That became a very 
uh, yeah, and a very specific thing, and all the and a lot of the movies that me and my friends made together. This idea of telling the story out of order, revealing information uh, when it needs to be revealed through either flashbacks or whatever, and it's a very it's effective, but it's a very like literary way of st- yeah. storytelling as opposed to cinematic. And but in a way, it's so cinematic at the same time. But it's like you there there are probably by far more books that tell stories in that way than mm. movies do. Yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're, it, you're right. It's certainly something he didn't invent. I mean, you have, you know, like The Killing does some of that, yeah, yeah. and you have like Rashomon. But it's weird to think that he put it, kind of put it on the map in the early 90s where it became a thing. Yeah, yeah. And then it became like a film thing to a point where people are like, are you going to be able to follow along? You know, like, <laughs> like you know, you'd ask somebody older. But then now it's just such old hat yeah, where yeah. I, I think back, like, why would I ever think that someone wouldn't be able to follow something that's out of... But it's like I guess it's the the education or the evolution of the of the the viewer. Sure, you know, with simple plots to like convoluted yeah. plots. So it's like it is a very interesting device where uh, you look at the script for True Romance. It's the same way. It's nonlinear. But then I guess Tony Scott just decided to put it uh, together chronologically. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But it's something that he certainly um, Quentin Tarantino really excelled with. Yeah, you know, and people but, really liked. Sure, and, <clears throat> but like I like Reservoir Dogs for like. I could totally read, see Reservoir Dogs as like a novel. Yeah. And then yeah. you get to like the Mr. White chapter. Yeah. And then we, we get this backstory as, we, as we're going through it. It's very, and he even uses chapter headings. I yeah. mean, it's almost like he he's obviously is a student of pop culture, uh, a student of cinema, but in a way, and I don't even know if he would argue this, that he is a, he's definitely even maybe more than a director, he's a writer. And the way I think he approaches film and the way he makes movies is very literary and more about more. What's more important is the script, I think, in a lot of his movies, maybe not all of them. Something like Kill Bill, maybe not, because it's such there's so much action. I mean, it's very action oriented. I mean, it's definitely a very specific homage to a certain kind, certain kinds of cinema and those kinds of cinema that he's homaging. Are not known for their scripts. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Django too. Django's doing that to the western. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you get a lot. Of, I mean, what's his face? The other one. Um, what's the last western he just did? A Hateful Eight. That's more of like like Reservoir Dogs. They're all stuck in a location, and there's actually a American. I don't know the name of it, but there's an American remake uh, of Rashomon. That's a western. Yeah, with William the, Shatner and yeah. G. Robinson, and they're stuck overnight i think it's a, not a, it's like a rainstorm and they're stuck at like a halfway point um in the old west uh it's not a cabin like in hateful eight but it's almost like an overhang like you'd see like where you go picnicking in a, in a forest and then they have like a rashomon kind of an idea where they tell the story of what happened to this gunfighter or whatever it is black and white and um uh why the hell did i even bring that up oh so yeah it's him like that's how he you know it's him doing the same thing with homaging to the western with Django. You know, uh, for me, he does sometimes in later films, uh, I always personally feel like he kind of needs a script editor because he indulges so much. And I think he's gotten such positive acclaim from those indulgences, rightfully so, that sometimes, like, especially with like films for me, like Inglorious Bastards, <clears throat> they go on a little bit too long. And there's entire scenes that I feel like you don't need or even plot points you don't need. But certainly he has, he, you know, he's found a niche and, uh, it's amazing to think that a guy like Quentin Tarantino, who 
at the time put four or five movies out and he like revolutionized the way cinema was presented i mean you have that with people like maybe a kubrick or maybe like an orson wells but uh you know you have a guy who only puts out like uh two or three different things oh the outrage i'm getting 1964 i'm getting a script runner thank you <laughs> tito uh he ran up and told me the outrage which is a, a very good movie which i don't know if that's a in print or if you can find that i saw it on turner classic movies some years ago uh the black and white uh, rashomon kind of remake yeah yeah but it's you know it's amazing you think a guy like Tarantino, much like a uh, you know a Kubrick did or like a, a, a Orson Welles, is they only make a handful of movies. But especially with Quentin Tarantino, it changes the whole. It flips the script, as they used to say, yeah, and yeah. completely revolutionary. You know, and then you have entire genres of movies like Killing Zoe or uh, Romeo is Bleeding or Little Odessa or all these little weird movies that come out that are just uh, hybrids of the genre, and it completely, you know. They start saying, well, you don't need to have a, a, a story told linearly. Audiences will understand if you just chop it up. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and people are like, you never thought of that before. I mean, I, I've just said we did, but it's like, you know, it well, was, th- became so popular. I think there's a stigma to flashbacks in uh, filmmaking. Um, and because well, it's or, hard. Or editing kind of non-linearly. Because I think for people in the know, it's... It, I think it can, not always. I think in this case, like in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, for instance, it's very uh, deliberate. Yeah. And it was written that way, and that's why it's like that. But it's, and as people that, it's very film school in that it can reek of exposition. This exposition. Didn't, exposition, but also of like, this didn't work. Like, we shot a movie and it doesn't work in the editing room. So we have to try to figure yeah, out. Yeah, so how now to we have to figure out. backstory. <laughs> we have you know. to do some reshoots. We have to explain what the hell's going on. How are we going to insert this in? <laughs> Fuck it. We'll put it in a flashback. You know? We'll make it stylistically just, interesting. Just put a dissolve in. <laughs> you, know. you know, there is a certain. Uh, there is a. I think there's a certain truth to that. And, and you know what? And if it's done wrong, it can completely it can derail a momentum of a film. You know, if if you uh, that's like uh, I'll take an example. There was a movie Pearl Harbor that came out some years ago with Ben Affleck. Yeah, yeah. And it's like I, I think the Pearl Harbor attack is like an hour long because they keep stopping for others. And it's like stop, just let me see the stop cutting these slow sequences, and you're cutting back, and you completely ruin the action sequence yeah, or whatever yeah. it is. So I think it's very. Uh, it's it's again going with the the even if they don't mean to be the educated audience nowadays where people don't have patience for sure you know almost oh this is gonna be a flashback and you know yeah, I don't yeah. want to see well there's this. a there's a horror movie that I, th- I believe is British that you requested that I watch and I'm not gonna mention it because I don't want to to uh, seem like I'm trashing on a, a a movie you know it's a perfectly fine movie I enjoyed it just fine I'm gonna have to write it on a piece of paper. And sh- <laughs> Well, maybe I'll know. Maybe I'll know by but, uh, uh, you by you saying it. Uh, you um, you wanted oh. me to see it uh, because I don't know. You were like, I want to discuss this with you. No, I mean we can we can bring it up because we're not disparaging it. It's just a movie. I mean, I think what, it, t- it takes what I such have a to right say turn. about it might seem disparaging. That's why I don't want to disparage it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. No, I I agree with you because there's two different ways of looking. Because at my because you basically you were like, um, so this movie was recommended to me. And I saw it, and and I couldn't, you know, it, it started out to be one movie, and then it completely took a right-hand turn, Yeah. and it turned out to be this completely different movie that you don't see coming, and you're like, wow, that's really refreshing and cool, but then when you watch it, you're like, well, it's just basically like they shot one movie, got in the editing room, realized 
<laughs> it was not working, and they wanted yeah, yeah. to put this. You're like, do you like what? Do you get it? And I was like, I don't think there's anything to get. Yeah, I, like it totally. And as an editor, maybe I'm more sensitive to it, especially the way that movie begins. Is that it? It felt to me. I mean, we'll, we'll say it's it's called Kill List. It's called Kill List. Yeah, I, it was. I had never heard of it. Uh, Greg Gutfeld had recommended it to me because I'm always asking good movies. I saw it, and. You know, it, it has a very heavy English accent. Some people have to watch it with subtitles. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have an English wife, and I was even sometimes struggling, you know, maybe because it's just how it, the mix was. And then near the end of the movie, it takes such a weird turn. And that's what I loved about it. Yeah, and I yeah. think that you have to agree that you, you loved it, the allure of that. Like, I like the movie just yeah, fine. That's how it, but to me, it... It takes su- we don't want to spoil it, but it takes such a weird turn near the end. But there's a certain structure to it, especially in the beginning, where it's jumping around a lot and it's very like hard cutting on things, and it just it really felt to me like. And I it's it's completely a feeling. I have I haven't talked to the guy that made Pure the movie, conjecture. and I haven't read anything about it. Yeah. But to me personally, it felt like. Uh, the way it was edited and kind of constructed, it seemed to me like that happened in post-production. Yeah. It wasn't the plan all the time, that it was probably much more linear, probably in, in everybody's head made way more sense. And then when they got in the editing room, they realized, like, that's not the movie we shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like So, like, there's this scramble of, well, do we continue with the movie we've we've intended to make and we're going down these and, and have it maybe be bad or do we try to make it interesting do we, we, we we're going down these wormholes and these left turns down these uh dead end roads but it's like that's that's a serious concern for people that we learned in film schools you can have an idea or a script in your head but then when you go to shoot it god forbid if you don't have the right coverage or you forget to shoot a shot or oh, it just doesn't work the performance isn't working sometimes on the page completely ver- sometimes on the page it works and then yeah. and on the in the frame it doesn't yeah so then when you get into the editing room you realize holy shit this isn't working or this is working this way so you have to completely reconstruct a movie and sometimes some filmmakers who i can't cite now that's their best that's their most favorite part is going in and seeing what movie they have in the can that they can edit in the editing yeah. room you know but my so the point is just Sometimes it's the vice. I think it's sometimes it's it's a way of trying to cover people's asses. And I think that's why there was a long period of time where it didn't happen so very often. And why when Quentin Tarantino did it, it was kind of new and fresh. It was done on purpose. And it seemed very cool. And it didn't have any of that stigma behind it. It seemed it was very deliberate the way. It felt very deliberate. There was nothing about it that seemed like, oh, we just... We're trying to make this work yeah, the best yeah. we can. <laughs> he wrote it and worked. And when he shot it, it worked. And it, it really changed the way uh, movies were made. For, definitely for a certain period of time, probably forever. I mean, even even this beyond that, it transcended the style with, I was saying music before, but then everybody was wearing those kind of suits. I mean, my first job was I worked as a waiter at a... Uh, I hop and I was wearing the thin tie at the time, you know, like that. Like everybody started to embody that, you know, the sunglasses, those, you know, the, those '90s sunglasses. Oh yeah, I mean, and, you get, uh, you know, and then how many homages? Swingers has an homage. Yeah, you like know, how many homages in pop culture walking, come from? You know, just those like guys walking down a street. Yeah, and like you know, that. and then you watch when we watched it earlier that opening. It's just no, oh, it's just an open. It's kind of slow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, like, you know this, but it's. 
at it the made time. An it was, yeah, it was. It's amazing. I mean, we, in college, I brought that poster. Remember, I had like a four foot by six foot <laughs> poster of that. And awesome, hanging on the wall, and yeah, it's like yeah. that was you know for us that was what we were aspiring to. It was cool. Yeah, and then like you know, I mean, I saw Pulp Fiction. That's you know that opened my ear up to all all his stuff, and I went to you know I saw. Uh, True Romance, which I loved. I saw this, which I loved. Uh, Four Rooms came out shortly after, which uh, I thought was okay. I think Robert Rodriguez short is good in it, and then I love the end because I knew the uh, Alfred Hitchcock reference, the Steve McQueen with the Peter Lorre thing, Mm -hmm. Uh, Man from Rio, maybe it's called. So I love that, and then like all the other, you know. And then I started watching Tim Roth movies. So anything Tim Roth came out with, I watched or Gary Oldman. Yeah, you're a big Tim Roth. You know, so it was like it was all because or Harvey Keitel. I remember seeing the Young Americans, you know, that he put out, and and uh, Bad Lieutenant, of course, was huge at that time. So you have all these really weird movies that just came out that you know I would try and watch. I I liked or I didn't like, you know. that was interesting. Clockers was good, although that was an independent movie, you know, with he did with Spike Lee. But it's like all these guys, Michael Madsen, did, you know, I, I ended up, you know, investigating all the yeah, guys in the movie. Yeah, you start to branch off because yeah. of, you know, this. This uh, this opened the door to investigating a lot of other things, I mean, it's, sure. it's so weird that today on the radio, you'll hear like on AM or FM, you'll hear like Stuck in the Middle with You come on. Yeah. And you think nothing of it, but... Uh, you know, I may be the only one in the world to say this, but this that song wasn't popular until this movie came out. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing that I'm like it's kind of like um, what's the movie? You know, put those old records on the shelf. With Tom <laughs> yeah. Cruise slides yeah, in yeah. that movie. That song was out, but out or, yeah. or it's like again Tom Cruise and Top Gun. You lost that loving feeling. It's like yeah, it yeah. has a the song has a sure. rejuvenation. Well, I think anybody from our generation that hears any of the songs on Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction soundtrack on the radio will think just playing, of those movies. It's because they're because we all own those CDs. Yeah, Song of a <laughs> Son of a Preacher Man, uh, a lot of Dick Dale stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then like uh, maybe Magic Carpet Ride, but certainly uh, Green Bag, I Gotcha, um, Stuck in the Middle with You. Sure. Sure, man. You know, all those, and there's a couple of good ones on Jungle Boogie, you know, by uh, Cool and the Gang. You know, that, that's all that's all crazy stuff. But he had this style that people loved. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now that we've talked for two hours about film school. About how we feel about film school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now 1992, gonna... as we said, class of 1992, Quentin yeah. Tarantino had spent the 80s working in a video store yeah. in California. California. Um, in act, he went to acting classes. He had, uh, he's an extra in an episode of Golden Girls. Yeah, as he's an Elvis impersonator. <laughs> he's one of many Elvis impersonators, which is pretty sweet to look, um, you know, to find that out. He had actually even attempted to make a, a feature length film. Yeah, uh, called My Best Friend's Birthday in 1987. It took him three years to shoot. They started in 1984. He was they were shooting it with friends. Uh, that he had a very low budget shooting out on 16. Uh, but because of reportedly uh, a fire at the film lab, we'll get, which we'll get into, <laughs> he lost the, the, what the, the back half of the film. Yeah. He, he basically only like 36 minutes of film for the, of stuff. He would basically the film's 36 minutes after they shot basically what would have amounted to a 70 minute film yeah they lost it in, the, in a fire and then that script ends up becoming later the basis of true romance but you since we just stopped talking about film school you have another film school story where the same thing happened to you uh there wasn't a fire no but, it wasn't a fire but i shot a, an entire junior year junior year i'm I, one of if you 
everybody's favorite Jay Blake movie is yeah. a little something called A Day at the Driving Range, which is my homage to Buster Keaton, which we talk a little bit about. And I believe uh, James Hancock even posted links when I did a Buster Keaton episode of Wrong Reel, of the Wrong Reel podcast. We talk a little bit about my love for Buster Keaton and this film that I made. So I was way ahead of the game with script. We cast it. We shot the film. I was the first one to shoot the film of the year. You know, I was so ahead, like in October. So ahead of the we were game. We in June. <laughs> you know, yeah. So so ahead of the game because we were going to do my film. Then we were going to shoot your film, shoot uh, other people's films. We were going to roll them out. Because what happens is that you, if you're all friends, we call these ourselves the Five Deadly Venoms. That was our production company uh, or Backdoor Productions, either one. <laughs> And the five of us, we'd all interchange. You know, I would do sound on Blake's movie. Blake would shoot my movie. Uh, the other kid would be a producer. I don't know if he produced really anything. Uh, you know, he just drove <laughs> but us around. But it was around. a title. Yeah. So, and then, so what we then would do is we would bank out time. Like, I shot mine over, like, Christmas break or the, our vacation. You shot yours in the fall. And the other kid was shooting his, like, in November. The other kid was shooting his, like, in February. So, and then tragedy struck. Tragedy struck. I... They the they lost it. Let me get your tissues. <laughs> they I shot the entire film. They as in when the he lab, went, yeah, yeah he went to get it processed, get it developed. The film he just had the raw you know uh, the raw scenes he had shot the film, and then all and my all the footage, all the film that we shot, we found out that they were he would we would bring it to a lab, and instead of developing it there, they were outsourcing it to another place to get developed and sent back. Yeah, in the courier the, something happened. Yeah, the, it got lost. Yeah, the, maybe it's the bike still messenger lost or something. To this day, somebody has 16 millimeter footage, of undeveloped footage of Blake's <laughs> real movie. The real. We were just talking about that last week with uh, the Glass Menagerie with Hal Holbrook. Yeah, that like yeah. there's movies lost they bring together, you know, that we find and that we should have brought the most blaring example of your <laughs> your junior film, A Day at the Driving Range. So yeah, we shot it and it got lost. Um, luckily. They reimbursed me. They helped for you out. They're real nice for the most part. Um, Lablink was it? Lablink? I don't remember. Yeah, maybe. Duart. Maybe. No, no. It's like it was not. Duart. It was. It was, it was like it was someplace out there. The Duart. Maybe it's Lablink. And uh, the city. So I went from being so far ahead of the game to not now that we had everybody else's films lined up and like locked in schedule wise. So I said stressful Blake. So I ended up not shooting my film till last, reshooting my entire film yeah, last like in, the, in in March because I remember it was around my birthday. Uh luckily we all had a really good time. The actors were actually more than happy to do it because we had such fun time doing and it. I think it was a time. blessing in disguise for you because you were able to actually have more rehearsal time in the movie like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean not ultimately, looking at it, you know, from yeah. a from a it would have been nice, It would have been nice to see the original footage yeah. so that I know things that were wrong with it to correct worked, it instead yeah. of just correcting it in my head. But uh it ended up being a blessing in disguise, you're right. But I remember you know, being in class and our teacher, Bob, being like uh, going around like, what's everybody's status? Like, where where's everybody's films at? And then just for like months, but Blake, where you at? They lost it, Bob. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, everybody's making progress. Yeah. I'm like, I got my first rough cut done. Uh, you know, everybody's like, uh, everybody's Blake's like, I got a gun in my mouth. Everybody's editing. I was like, I still haven't shot it. We have to wait for the weather to get better. We have to worry about schedules. Yeah, it takes place on a, a golf course in a driving range, and it's winter. It's just snow on the ground. Nobody goes golfing in the in the middle of the winter. Uh, luckily, luckily, it. everybody was they, he was understanding, and it got to a point where like, oh, okay. Even the driving range, we shot white planes. That guy was nice. We, yeah, we yeah. Explained. What do you need? You need to pull the tractor out? Yeah, he was so nice to us. That guy. But so what was this, his name? 
I don't remember, but nice unfortunately, uh, these kinds of things happen. Yeah. Long, uh, so we took a, we t- we're backing out of the dead end street. We're coming back on the track. So that happens to Quentin Tarantino's first movie. He ends up using that script and idea to go do Tromance later on with that script. Uh, and so now he has he writes Reservoir Dogs, claims that he realized he he started to fall in love with these heist movies and realized that there hadn't been like a really good one in a long time. So he decides to write one. Yeah. They're going to shoot it for. Says he writes it in three weeks. Yeah. Yeah, but he says that's kind of a lie, though, because he had some of the dialogue already kind of in his head. So when he sat down to write it, he says he's very good at dialogue. And as we were just saying, 70% of the movie is freaking dialogue. So yeah, he said yeah. it, was, it was a breeze to write because once he sat down and started to write, he was, it was easy for him to have the interaction between characters as opposed to a lot of set pieces being explained in the story. And the original intention was to shoot this very low budget, again, with friends in all the parts and stuff. And he had an acting teacher and he showed the script to his acting teacher. Well, his, his, his producer friend, Lawrence Bender, he met Lawrence Bender at a party and they were together and they were going to make a movie and Bender, they were going to make a low budget. They were going to make the movie for 30 grand black and white where uh, Tarantino was going to play Mr. Pink. Bender was going to play somebody else and they were going to do maybe the sequence where they're running and shooting, you know, uh, that whole action sequence. And Bender was at acting school and Bender had an acting teacher who he showed the script to and and they were talking with the actor, the acting teacher one night while they're walking up to the car and they're like, who would you think would be perfect in this movie? And they brought up Harvey Keitel and the acting teacher's like, oh, I I know Harvey Keitel. I, I have a connection. My wife knows him or something. And they showed it to Harvey Keitel and within like 48 hours, Harvey Keitel called Bender up on the phone and was like, I would like to be able to be a part of this and, and, uh, and you know, even be in it if I could. So he, getting Harvey Keitel's name on it really yeah. helped everything. And apparently he, even, he signed on as co-producer just to help yeah, raise he money. Started, then, then he, they cast, I think, um, Harvey Keitel, and they might have cast one other person. And then it was on the West Coast, Harvey Keitel, who was, of course, an East Coast guy, uh, living, he says, "Why don't you come out to New York and I will pay to fly you out here, put you up in a hotel. We'll do some New York casting." And that's where they found Steve Buscemi and Tim Roth was yeah. casting in New York because at the time Quentin Tarantino still had the idea of him being Mr. Pink in it. And then when uh, uh, Buscemi sat down, uh, he did the read at different reads, and they realized, "Oh, you know what? Buscemi's really good as Mr. Pink." And they also say that in in this weekend that he was here, Quentin hung out at. Um, Harvey Keitel's house and ate him out of house and home and they read the script twice where Keitel reads Mr. White Keitel reads Mr. Pink and they all agreed like you know what you're the best as Mr. White and that's what Harvey Keitel agreed on and then because of all the help he was doing Bender was like we're, we're going to make you an associate producer whatever and Keitel's like finally I was waiting for you guys to say that yeah, to me yeah. you know so um that's how they kind of got it be, blossomed from being just a 30 grand movie to getting like almost a million dollar budget because they had a uh, you know uh they had such a great script. People loved that it was tight as well as getting these people on board. And then they went to um, the Sundance Institute, yeah, which is like in uh, up in uh, Utah, maybe in the in the in the mountains. And they did like a weekend thing where they uh, they they show scripts or that they're going to shoot. They do scenes in front of uh, established directors to get notes. So Quentin Tarantino went with Steve Buscemi and they did some stuff. And a bunch of people saw the stuff, including Terry Gilliam, and some people were kind of uh, dismissive about 
Tarantino style, saying you're you're you're, you're doing too long takes or it's it's kind of boring. But then Terry, Terry Gilliam was like, hey, you know, you have a vision, you should you know cultivate that vision and stick with it if, if you think you know what you're doing. And that's why ultimately Terry Gilliam is thanked in the uh, yeah in the credits. But then getting that Sundance thing, I think that secured some more money that Robert Redford funded or founded thing. So yeah, they ended up now being able to uh, make a pretty low budget movie but still a sizable one compared to what sure, they originally yeah. wanted to do you know and all the cards fell in place with all these young actors you know and it's a great cast great ensemble i mean if if anything that might be its greatest strength well we have the what if game that we love to play <laughs> and they were talking about that Kaitel had run it by dennis hopper dennis hopper was interested but then he just couldn't do it because of con uh he was he was obligated to do something else and christopher walken was on board and there's even like a uh, maybe in some British publication, like like a variety of what's happening in Hollywood now, and they it's in print that a young Quentin Tarantino, first time director writer, is going to make a movie with Harvey Keitel and Qu- Christopher Walken called uh, Reservoir Dogs. So they were going to get more money, but then when Walken couldn't do it, the budget went down. But it was still the the budget yeah. they were okay with. So there's a lot of what ifs. Samuel yeah, yeah. Jackson read for. Um, for uh, uh, the the black hold, hold away, and it's funny because me and my friends always thought like, well, was, why, Sam, well, yeah. was Samuel L. Jackson just not available? Yeah, why, why, <laughs> this is this is Samuel L. Jackson proud of the role. I mean, Matt Dillon, he I think he read for the role. Uh, George Clooney read for Mr. Blonde. You have a lot of weird uh, isms of people reading. Viggo Morganson read for something, you know. But then this is the cast they ended up with, and yeah. I think you're like you know Chris Penn. Um, there was an older actor who I forget the name of that had read for uh, uh, Joe, Joe Cabot, but then he always thought of Lawrence Tierney, who's a, an actor going back to the 40s yeah. in that role. So the cast ends up being you know, freaking sweet. Yeah, it's a great cast. Like I said, it's probably its greatest strength is the, the this group of guys and the chemistry that they have together. Um, watching it this time... Well, so when was the last time you watched it? I probably, like I was... Well, there was at one point where I went to like a midnight screening of it, but that I might have been in high school. <laughs> I might have been still. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. The last time I definitely watched it was around 2001. We had just graduated, and I was working editing educational videos for this company in Mount Kisco, New York. And for some reason, there was this VHS tape of Reservoir Dogs in the office. And so I don't know why he it uses a teaching device <laughs> for educational. Make it and, more like uh, Reservoir Dogs. And when I was editing, I had a I had like a monitor with a VHS deck right next to my computer. And there was one day where I put it on and I was editing. I was working, but I was watching it at the same time. And I had watched it, but I hadn't seen it since before we got to film school. Before that, and I remember watching it and being like, oh, you know what? It's, it holds up. Yeah. Like, I like it. Like, then. Yeah, in yeah, 2001, yeah. after I hadn't seen it since, like, maybe 96. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, that difference is nothing. You know, like, that amount of years. Yeah, we don't it's know It's nothing. Idea. But back then, it was like a, it felt like a long time when you're young. Yeah, five <laughs> years later, you're like, whoa. I was, yeah, the same with me. I watched it. I knew it line for line in high school. You know, I used to probably play oh, yeah, in my and basement and do movies. There was one know. thing I will say about the uh, the dialogue the style of writing that guys like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith do have is that it's endlessly quotable. Oh, yeah. We quote Pulp Fiction all the time, even though it's not our one of our favorite movies. Yeah, yeah. You, you and I are like, motherfucker. 
You know, we, we say that all <laughs> the time. You're find, yeah. I think you're gonna find. I think you're gonna find. Go find. Oh, shit, done it over with. I think you're gonna find yourself. Well, uh, this one still. What, what's the thing? I uh, today the move. The one in this movie that I probably still quote. Endlessly. Motherfucker! I'm trying to watch the Lost Boys <laughs> here. Motherfucker! I'm trying to watch the Lost Boys definitely, and I'm sure we'll say it if we ever do the Lost Boys. Yeah. on the podcast. That's me. Yeah, me. Uh, but uh, if we ever go to like a restaurant and I need to get up, I, I always say, "Where's the commode in this dungeon?" I got to take, take, take a square. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and then like, yeah, there's like, I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. There's all these, there's all these different lines in this movie. But, uh, yeah, that the, the, the there is the commode in this dungeon. I got to take a square. Is one that I still say. Probably the thing, oddly enough, the thing that gets quoted the most by me. Uh, at least when we had different friends that I hung out with, whenever we would go out to eat and we were done eating, I would say, let's get the hell out of here, which is from Army of Darkness, which is one of the skeletons. Oh, well, you know what we quote, too? Says that. We, we quote from Pulp Fiction. What's the... Uh, uh we used to do is a Java baby. What's with motorcycle? This is a Java baby. What's Java? Is this? And then the other one, like, can I have a blueberry pancake? I want blueberry pancakes and five pancake. sausages. When oh, they're watching freaking Clutch Cargo. Uh, <laughs> so there's yeah, there's so many of these movies that like you know you, you forget where you get these lines from that yeah, you quote. Yeah. You know, uh, I used to quote like the um, Tim Roth, like you know, I'm stuck in a situation here which I couldn't possibly begin to explain from four rooms. And yeah, yeah. my first, I had seen this. I knew the thing, but Brunt front to back into high school and then I think when we got into college I don't know if I watched it again I don't think so like I said it was and it's not surprising because we were watching everything else we were, you know and then I remember getting out of college and then I remember living with Mike Stratton uh, a guy you and I both knew a childhood friend of mine who that when he moved out you moved in with me post college in Yonkers so I remember when he and I were together thinking I hadn't watched these movies in years I don't want to but Pulp Fiction came on and we sat down and watched Pulp Fiction so that's 2000 four or five now there's a movie that i haven't seen probably since high school and i liked it i was like oh this is because i was because i was so sick of this yeah, stuff yeah. like I, I still don't know if i could you know if i would like volunteer to sit down and watch pulp fiction but i remember really not, liking not it not because it like it, it's it's bad and i won't be able to stand it there's just something like i feel like i saw it so many times kind of ruin it for yourself and i just i'm past it well, that was with this movie. I, I I had kind of felt like I've seen it too much. I need to give it some age, some space for me to come back on it. So I probably haven't seen this in almost twenty years, you know. So yeah. coming back and watching it tonight or last night, whenever what, how late it is, <laughs> depending on what, what, what time you look at it. We have no we have no clock down here. Uh, so it's 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 just it's funny how you haven't seen a movie in so many years but then you remember dialogue like we did raise the titanic a couple of yeah, weeks yeah. ago and i'm still I, I can still quote don't you want us to dig it up and it's like <laughs> this movie here reservoir dogs i can quote the entire oh yeah you know, i'm a big charlie chan fan and he's making a charlie chan joke in the movie i'm like oh, <laughs> oh yeah toby wong yeah that's so, a thing i used to say a lot charlie chan <laughs> i got my diamonds big dick coming out of my left here and i don't know what charlie i don't know what the hell coming out of my right you know it's like you just think of all toby the, toby wong toby wong toby wong motherfucking charlie chan <laughs> You know, and I'm like, I watched the Charlie Chance. I know who Warland Warren and Owen is. Yeah, well, you know, when we watched, uh, when we did Wayne's World, I was saying, like, it was like, I was. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, it was coming back to me. Like, Seen like, a second before. There was like a delay. <laughs> You're going to say, you the know. The movie was like, I was like, I was watching the movie about two seconds ahead of time. Like, as it was happening, I was remembering. Oh, yeah, this exactly is exactly what's happening. Well, this has happened with this movie. And another thing is, again, with the. It's starting to happen with me with everything, so I don't know if it's just age, but like as I bring up in the past podcasts that like you go back and watch a movie from the '80s, and you realize like 
it's it's sometimes they're slower than you remember yeah, or the yeah. plots there's it's not very intricate and this is here where it's the scene when i'm waiting for them to cut to the uh when uh Buscemi and Keitel are talking and they cut to Buscemi's backstory of him running out from the from the bank heist or the jewelry heist it's like I remember how exciting that was and now it's not it's not that exciting you know it's just him running down the street and you know there's a camera dollying with him and then <laughs> yeah, it's you know, still, I don't know no you know, I mean big. I know but I mean like you, you look at what your eyes used to today with all this yeah, computer yeah. technology I remember how surprising was him getting hit by that car you know and then like now it's just like oh okay you know if it's an I forget if it's an El Camino or it's some sort of station wagon and it's just like you know, you remember it being so much more action action packed, but then you you get so like all the you know the action porn that's out yeah. there now, kind of you know. So for anybody, just in a nutshell, for anybody that hasn't seen this movie, I'm sure and, there are some, and we're you know we we might spoil certain things about it, um, but it, it basically it's a it's a jewelry heist gone wrong. Yeah, and uh, we never actually see the jewelry heist. We kind of just see the aftermath of yeah. it. Yeah, and. Uh, these five so five guys okay, everybody keeps talking about five guys but it might be like five guys plus you so it might be six guys <laughs> it might be six cutting nice guy Eddie and uh, and then so they're all supposed to like you know rendezvous at, at this warehouse yeah and so we open on Tim Roth is uh, well other than the the uh, other than the restaurant scene we were talking about before the credits, it's yeah. just them bullshitting around, like paying a check after breakfast. Yeah, well, that's the that's the, that's where it's like, oh, like that, that I found tedious this time around. Yeah, but talking about tipping, <laughs> it's funny because uh, rounding out the cast, uh, we also have Quentin Tarantino's playing Mr. Brown in the movie. Then you have another guy called Eddie Bunker, who was an actual career criminal who went straight in the '70s and did some pretty influential stuff. He wrote *Runaway Train*, which is a big John Voight movie in the '80s that people love. And he wrote another Dustin Hoffman movie, which uh, based off a book I think is called *No Beast So Fury Furious* or *No Furious No Beast*, about a guy getting out of jail and trying to like like they talk about in *Shawshank*. The guys yeah. get out of jail and they just can't handle being you know out in the real world. Yeah. And he talks about this. He's like, you know, when I saw the script and talking to Quentin. He's like, I didn't realize the idea of film. And it's like something that Jurgens and Randy Jurgens and our friend talks about where you have to learn about R-E-A-L versus R-E-E-L, real to real. Yeah. He says, like, first of all, he's like, you wouldn't go out to breakfast in the morning dressed up as the same because the waitress is going to remember you, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then he's like, secondly, I would never go into a job with people I won't know because you don't know who the hell you can trust, you know? And that sounds like, oh, you know, so there are some kind of the fantastic involved yeah, here yeah. with this opening sequence. But uh, it kind of establishes the mood, I guess, sure. you know? Uh, but like the scene where C. Buscemi is talking about how he doesn't tip, yeah, like that's a like it's notorious. People use that. People that's people start to you know that's like people who felt that way are like I'm that guy. Yeah, yeah. You but know? also watching it now, like like removed from it for so many years, like that was the that's like the one part of the movie was like uh. You remember that all? Like yeah. no, but for Madonna, me, like a virgin. Yeah, verse, yeah. The, yeah. even the the like the virgin thing. I don't. I didn't mind so much, but that. I was like, man, that back and forth of them. Yeah, I was like, this is tedious. Like, yeah. this is like everything I don't like but I was, about. But I was, I was chuckling at one. That. It's wrong. Yeah, waiters and waitresses don't make minimum wage. No, they make below minimum wage. So I didn't know that in high school. Oh, I did. But now I, I know. Like they don't. They make like they get paychecks for literally like zero cents. Yeah, I was getting. I was making five dollars and twenty five cents at IHOP. Uh, that was minimum wage as a busboy, and then when I became a waiter, it went down. I was getting three fifty an hour or something yeah, yeah. like that. Not even so they make less than minimum wage. Yeah, so they, they really do on depend on. They really do depend on. But I do tips. understand what he's saying that there are people who just tip no matter what or expect to tip no matter what. Where yeah, yeah. you know, you know, outside of America, that's not 
the case at all. People yeah, don't yeah. tip. So I understand that aspect where people expect a tip for doing nothing. But yeah. then I also understand his argument where it's like, you don't tip people at McDonald's, but you tip these. So it's, there is a weird thing there. But, but as- I was aside from the logistics of yeah, it or whatever. But like, I was laughing at the jokes. Like, you know, when Joe comes back, who didn't tip? Yeah, I don't, yeah. shut up. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like that. I was like, that, that was yeah, like, yeah. yeah. But there was, was a funny. part of me that was like, oh yeah, like yeah. this is the way movies were written then. Yeah. Um, it was like a harsh reminder of like this, there's no, this holds no bearing. You could chop out this interaction and you could chop the whole scene out. Y- yeah. And it doesn't affect anything. Yeah. Like you don't, okay. We learn a little bit about Mr. Pink and we learned about the but, camaraderie, but you know. we learn nothing that's useful for the rest yeah. of the Except movie. I guess about K Billy super sounds, which, which kind of plays a part in the movie. He talks about because we we assume this is happening over a weekend then the yeah, heist yeah. because they set up the the Jeffrey Wright not Jeffrey Wright Stephen Wright the completely different DJ <laughs> uh, you set up that there's a DJ playing this like super sounds of the seventies weekend and they're talking about how awesome it is so I guess they're all listening to it and that's kind of yeah, the yeah, backdrop yeah. of what is happening through that then you have the credit sequence which is the uh, them walking out looking all cool with the slow motion to yeah. little green bag and then you have it opens up with all of a sudden you're you, over over the credits, you start hearing screaming and yelling. You don't know. I remember it's it's quite unsettling. And this is another avenue, which we eventually get to. That this movie became so gory and violent for people that this was too much for people to handle. You know the ear sequence. Oh yeah. Rick Baker and Wes Craven walked out at Sundance because it was too much for them to deal with. I remember. Uh, you know, so just, I remember knowing that. I remember watching the movie, yeah. knowing the word of mouth. I didn't know about Rick Baker until we researched this, but I remember Wes, hearing back in the day, Wes Craven walked out. Of I it. mean, I don't so know very, how much of the actual plot we need to get into, but so basically, but I think what anybody needs to know is that, like we said, it's a heist gone wrong. We never see the heist. It's kind of told in the aftermath with a couple of flashbacks for character development, uh, really. And then the whole big thing is that uh, somebody is an undercover cop. We're tr- it becomes like a Rashomon. We're trying to figure yeah. out what happened um, uh, by listening to each other's point of view. And I think that's... Originally, he did say that they did it for budgetary reasons, but I think it's still just a brilliant device because everybody... It's like Psycho. You never see the knife going into her, Janet yeah, Lee. Yeah. Well, it doesn't think matter. They do. it's a, it is great. I that's mean, what it, I'm saying. But it, but it gives the, the, the viewers such more of an insight because then they can make the robbery their own in their head. So then when Steve, you know, the, that great piece of dialogue with Mr. White, like, how old do you think that black girl was? 20, maybe 21, if that. It's yeah, like yeah. now you visualize what Mr. Pink was doing. Yeah. So it's like, it's, I find it brilliant that you, you, you don't, it's about the robbery, but you don't, you really don't need to show the robbery yeah. because it's about the, the character's falling apart you know yeah. and how which people i think deal is stuff. great yeah. i mean i think that's you know uh aside from maybe like the great ensemble cast like obviously it's a very well constructed uh script yeah and it's a very f- it, it i mean aside from flourishes like the things we we're talking about with the the some of the dialogue and stuff uh being very stylized i mean it's a very lean script yeah. and it's very focused and the fact that it's about what happens after i find very interesting and compelling and had it been more of a linear telling of this heist that goes wrong seeing the heist all this stuff which we've seen a hundred times yeah, before it would have it would not have been as good of a movie yeah and this wouldn't it would have wouldn't have stood out certainly and it's also cool because then you get these expectations they talk about for 15 or 20 minutes about mr blonde and mr yeah. blonde's actions and then when he shows up there 
now there's this big weight in the room because we've heard of his rep, you know. Or, oh, or, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, know. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, you think about... Uh, or Mr. Orange bleeding well, out, you know. What is it, like, uh, Magnificent Seven? Okay. Is it that one where Eli Wallach is the... Is yeah, he's the, the Mexican, yeah, yeah. And he... Uh, it, there's a story where Eli Wallach's the bad guy, and he's not really in much of the movie at all. So his agents were like, "You, why do you, why do you want to do this movie? You're not even in it. I mean, you're only in it like at the end." He's like, "But they talk about me the entire movie." <laughs> yeah, you get you just it's just such a buildup of him. Yeah, like, yeah. but they talk about that character so that when I'm on screen, it's gonna be like I was in this entire. I was there the whole yeah, time. He's a badass, and that's the, the. You're totally right. It's the way it, Mr. Blonde works here. Yes, we see him in the in the in the diner scene and stuff but then there's this we talk about what you know what the hell was he doing he's a lunatic and all yeah. this stuff so that when he comes he shows up and he's calm cool and collected like with like the coolest of all performances maybe ever on cinema played by michael uh madsen uh it's it's i mean everybody wanted to be that it's, well guy. it's much more it's much more effective too um there is like medical journals that cite this movie for perfect definitions of sociopaths or psychopaths where harvey Keitel's character is a sociopath where he doesn't want to do what he has to do but he will do what he has to do to get it done like kill people or whatever but he's not taking joy in it but then you have the michael madsen mr blonde character who's a psychopath who is actually taking joy in what he's doing and you know and it's a, it's a clear difference of you know who you're working with in this world and it's even more scary when he's so calm cool and collective yeah, when yeah. he comes back with the soda which means he just went through a drive-through you know <laughs> but it's but then you <laughs> stop about, for lunch but that's that's brilliant because like it's like in uh white heat with james cagney he's getting away from the cops they go to a drive-in because you got to hide out mm. they're not going to look for yeah, it here yeah. and it's the same thing here i'll just get into a drive-through they're not going to be looking for a guy in drive-through getting mcdonald's yeah. or taco bell but you know it's another thing that we don't have to see I yeah mean, it's a brilliant little thing where he's drinking a soda it tells us everything we need to know about that then then he ends up uh then so the basically the big conflict at the beginning is what happened we got to get out of there we got to get mr orange tim ross character who's bleeding out of the gut to some sort of help before he dies and then steve buscemi's bringing in the aspect of there's got to be a cop because the you know the, there had to be it had they to be were already job. there yeah so these are all the different conflictions and when mr blonde comes mr blonde uh, after some tussle and they bring up the professionals with Lee Marvin uh, a great movie yeah. and that's what the line what's his face says let's go to work is from uh, Joe says uh, great western uh, there's a little conflict there and then we find out that Mr. Blonde's kidnapped the cop in the trunk which nowadays I understand I guess they, he told Chris Penny had to kidnap him to get him away but now watching as an adult I think it's kind of ludicrous that they he kidnaps a beat cop and he thinks a beat cop is going to be able to know who the informant on. You know, if he got a detective. Marvin. Marvin Nash. Yeah. How, I, you know, thank you. <laughs> thank you for sharing Jesus a couple weeks ago. Eddie. Eddie, how do I look? <laughs> That's what we should do a radio play of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, I mean, I think for people that, uh, you know. for, for our people that listen, that are listening right now, uh, at least there's from, a lot of spoilers. There's well, there's so a lot of spoilers, but the, in terms of like this, we're taking movie, the assumption that people have seen this. Uh, the thing with this movie, and I think, it, and maybe it, why it took us so long to get to the actual movie, in a weird way, this is the, um, this is a very unique walk down memory lane for me. Yeah, and I think f- for us, yeah, uh, like I said, if it wasn't for this movie. 
like we might not know each other. Yeah, you might not have gone to film. School. I might not go to film school. We never would have met. We wouldn't be doing this podcast. I mean, it was it was a very important movie. Like I said, no matter how I feel about Tarantino now or his movies, I do have to give him like the respect and the props of being like you know what like my he changed my life yeah the guy the guy changed you know altered the trajectory of my life life in quantum leap terms yeah if something were to happen to if sam went back (laughs) it stopped reservoir dogs with al imagine that that's (laughs) al's like gushy sam you gotta finish reservoir dogs (laughs) (laughs) wow wow that's Sam. You gotta complete before you can leap out of here. You gotta get Quentin to finish Reservoir Dogs. He doesn't have the funding. You know they want Christopher Walken in it. There's this. Uh, uh, sorry for all these tangents, but there's there's this show called The Legends of Tomorrow on the CW, which is like a DC show. And there was an episode not too long ago where something happens, and they're back in like the late '60s, and something happens, and and George Lucas. Drops out of film school because of it, yeah. which makes two of the characters in the show like forget why they're there because it was Star Wars and Indiana Jones that made those guys want to go into science or archaeology, oh, wow. kind of. And they, so then the, the whole show became about like we have to get George Lucas to to get back into film school, and, and that's like what the like seriously. If Quentin Tarantino didn't make this movie, I have no idea where I would be today. This is like uh, there's an episode of Quantum Leap where there's a haunted house episode, and there's like a kid next door, a young kid with glasses, and at the end of the episode, you find out his name. He's Stephen like King. Stevie King. Yeah, I remember that? And you're like, whoa! And then and I think that's right when uh, Sam leaps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, also, the what ifs is James Woods was tapped, and uh, his agent at the time. Uh, kept refusing Quentin Tarantino and Quentin Tarantino kept making bigger offers and then uh, the agent kept saying no and then years later when Tarantino met Woods he told him the story and Woods said he had no idea because the agent never approached him about it so the rumor is that he fired his agent but then Woods says later on that I didn't exactly fire him but I was very pissed that the guy didn't come to me about it Um, Vincent Gallo also uh, auditioned as well as Robert Forrester which they ended up using in Jackie Brown. That kind of uh, yeah. revol- revitalized his career, as well as Timothy Carey, who was almost got the part, but then for some reason Keitel didn't want him, I think because... So he had a reputation. Yeah, he right? carried a little more weight, so he was kind of worried that it would then deter Keitel's influence on the project. So they instead got um, Lawrence, um, uh, Lawrence Tyranny. Uh, it's also interesting, these three early movies... Uh, true romance not well, so much natural born killers yeah yeah well we should just one quick note before, is that there's also I don't know if it's a rumor or if it's true or whatever that Tony Scott had re- had read Reservoir the scripts for Reservoir Dogs and True Romance and really wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs but Quentin Tarantino said no like I really want that to be my directorial debut so then he ended up right, uh, buying the rights to do uh, True Romance because he couldn't get Reservoir Dogs and he actually re- redid that and I think Steve Buscemi might be in a deleted scene of Reservoir Dog, of True Romance with Samuel L. Jackson. There's a deleted scene with Gary Oldman's character where Gary Oldman is going to buy drugs. The drugs end up becoming the MacGuffin in the movie. And it's Samuel L. Jackson in a motel, and it might actually be Steve Buscemi in there too. I don't remember. But there's... I love the connection. So as far as we've got, so Mr. Blonde has got a cop. He takes yeah, the cop yeah. out, and they start trying to torture the cop, beat the cop up to see what he knows about which one yeah, you know, yeah. was the thing. While well, Mr. Orange, the kid guy is shot, is passed out. I love the world that Tarantino creates where everybody is kind of related. Where in the Harvey Keitel, Mr. White flashback, 
Joe's like, how's Alabama? And that's a reference to Alabama, who's uh, Patricia Arquette from True Romance. Yeah. Or um, Vic Vega is uh, Mr. Blonde's character. And then in Pulp Fiction, Vince Vega is John Travolta. So to assume they're the Vega brothers. And there was an idea for a minute that Tarantino was going to make a movie about the two of them. But I guess it, that fell to the back burner. And then they've both gotten too much older because... Spoiler alert, they both die in each movie. Yeah. You know, it'd be hard to do a movie now with them looking, you know, older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I just also heard in but reading But there was this, also talk that he originally was going to put Michael Madsen in that part in, in Pulp Fiction, I remember. Oh, really? Back in the day. Before they got that. Travolta, maybe, yeah. or something. We both have that book, which I referenced before I came over uh, your mom's house tonight, was the... Uh, Quentin Tarantino's Cinema of Cool. Yeah. We both came to film school, along with our Louis Prima CDs <laughs> uh, and, and uh, whatever else yeah. we brought together. We both brought that Quentin Tarantino book. Yeah. You know, and I and, never read it. And, and there it, was another, and there's an, there was another Quentin Tarantino. There's another Quentin Tarantino book, which we talk about in zomb- in our zombie podcast. Yes, that you said that. That that was the, in my introduction to a lot of Italian horror was through that book, because that book was just him talking about movies that influenced him. Yeah. So that introduced me to Sonny Chiba movies, that introduced me to Fulci. We should do like a, a, a <laughs> what do you call that, the Street Fighter. I would love, you know, <laughs> turn to Street Fighter. Street do like Fighter. some martial art, movies. do a martial arts weekend. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So but just uh, these again, influences. Re- reiterating yeah. like the influence. You know, uh, and, and the reason why I brought up like just to emphasize like this weird walk memory down uh, memory line it's like because we'll just break into like doing like a marvin nash impression because they it's like really it's just ingrained it's, in our souls <laughs> yeah, it's like part of our dna at this point like any one of these things like if we were not even recording and one of us started doing that yeah we would know exactly what the other what, one was yeah, doing and, and, what, and, and what the response what, what the response was uh i mean if i to give a shout out to one of our listeners uh greg foster who is a high school friend of mine um, him and Chris Frodo, who's also a listener of our show, uh, that was another line that me and him used to say through high school. Like, motherfucker, I'm trying to watch the Lost Boys here. You know, even though he sounds, he's yeah. American, but he sounds like he's Irish in that and, moment. Uh- since we were talking, yeah, well, that's the Tim Roth has trouble with the with the American accent, yeah, especially in this movie. God bless him, yeah. but uh, oh, bless his little cotton socks. <laughs> little Tim Roth, has a little Tim Roth there with Cody Carpenter. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, Going back to, since we're talking about uh, Mr. Blonde and the cop. Yeah. And then you were talking about how Wes Craven and Rick Baker walked out. Yes. Of the screening. At Sundance. Uh, because of the brutality of the cop and the infamous uh, cutting off of the ear. Yeah. Um, I watched, I remember watching Reservoir Dogs with my mom. Okay. Uh, first screening? I don't know if it was the first time I had seen it. It was the first time she had seen it. Because you've done a lot of sleepovers with your mom. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, but I mean, I don't mean... You I, know, mean you, I don't know if I would call them sleepovers, but I would watch movies but with But your mom, mom was one of these people who'd watch anything with you. Didn't you watch like, oh, yeah. Zombie for the first time with your mom? Uh, my or? mom has seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre more than once. Uh, but mostly because like I'll be in the living room watching movies and she'll be in the kitchen and then when she's done doing the oh, dishes, she'd, come in. she'd come in and she'd sit down. My mom always took an interest and was willing to support what's the, the kind uh, of stuff I was in. What's the too. movie with um, oh, that great movie that's sold backwards that uh, begins with an R? Uh, with what's her face, Monica Bellucci. Oh, I didn't watch that with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I watched that thing with your mom. Jeez. Although back then, maybe I would have. Yeah. I mean, I watched like Repulsion and yeah, Dead yeah, Ringers yeah, yeah, yeah. with my mom. Uh, 
you know, and uh, so your mom watches with so you. I so watched, the I remember, scene. I was remember watching Reservoir Dogs, and my mom comes in and sits down. And, like I said, my mom would sit down and watch anything with me if I was watching, just to see what I was into. Mean Streets, watch that with my mom. Uh, Mr. Blonde scene starts, and I'm watching. I'm sitting the way the 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 uh, living room was laid out. Was so there was a chair in front of the television which I would sit in, and then there was a like sofa, which my mom and my stepdad would sit on. Which we watched Mean Guns up in that set. That up in that piece. That motherfucker. <laughs> Sorry. And, and uh, ice t- the iced tea vehicle. <laughs> and when that scene, st- when the Mr. When the Mr. Blonde is going to, he pulls out the razor blade, and he's going to cut off the ear, and then he's going to burn. My mom stood up from the couch and ran circles around the couch screaming. <laughs> She was so freaked out by it. You I'll know, never forget that. It, this is the brilliance of it. So they do the scene. Uh, they shoot it two different ways. They shoot an actual scene with him cutting the ear off. And then they shoot the scene that we see in the movie, the take where the pan's away. Harvey Weinstein doesn't want to put it in the movie because at the time he's running Miramax. And, he, and so Tarantino has to fight. And Harvey Weinstein relents and lets him in the movie. Uh, and it's one of those examples, again, where you don't see the horror, but... For people at that time, the buildup nowadays with torture porn movies, which yeah. I don't like, I hate movies like that, that have these movies where these uh, an innocent family gets tortured by these people like these Rob Zombie movies, and then like that's the end of it, like funny games. I, yeah. It's too realistic for me. Um, or the, the, the video, you know, remember Vacancy? The videotapes they find in Vacancy yeah, is the yeah. most frightening thing for me in that movie. So it's, it's amazing to think that, and me being like the high school nerd of, watching the movie i used to play stuck in the middle with you out to see if it matched and it will match on his walk out and when he comes back in it's they never cut it it's still it's, you know what i mean it's still yeah, yeah. and i love the idea of i only really realized that this viewing that when matson goes out to his his own cadillac cause they used his own cadillac in the movie because they couldn't afford to get him a car is that you hear outside very much, um, maybe it's on purpose, you hear kids playing, you hear ambience, you hear like sprinklers, you hear alarm systems going off, like the world is yeah. going around on a Sunday afternoon. And he's about to commit this huge atrocity that he doesn't think anything of. Yeah. And I can completely see him lighting the guy on fire. You know, it's almost like people, these uh, barbarians who do this to animals, and you see it online, that of course he's going to light the fucking guy on fire. Yeah. But it must be so terrifying. I don't know if it's terrifying nowadays that we have like The Walking Dead on television, that we're so desensitized to it. But at the time, the inevitability of yes, this guy is going to you know you know he cut his he cut his ear off, and he will say you know we're going to watch this guy get lit up on fire. That must be so frightening to people, yeah, yeah. you know, of the time like a Wes Craven and a Rick Baker, and then Rick Baker said to to, to Quentin Tarantino later on, he said like Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino, he said to him, don't take that as an offense of the movie. That it's just I found it so disturbing. I don't like movies that actually show this kind of realism in their brutality and i think that was a little this along the same lines for west craven where this yeah is, well i mean it's oddly a enough too real. West craven you know made a made a career on torture well look at last house on the left that's what i mean you know i mean so it's like these movies you would think that a guy like that i can understand rick baker's point of view but a guy who his first movie was about rape and murder and then getting the comeuppance you know that he's going to get upset about this which is a, a, a this really happens sadly. yeah well i mean west you know? craven was really a that's core like a pretty soft-spoken intellectual yeah yeah <laughs> i mean just because he was making a movie to you know make about a torture and rape <laughs> that doesn't mean that he was he's okay with it so it's completely uh amazing the effect that that had on yeah me, i mean it was a, it's a big deal and it's and it's funny to look back at uh this movie 
uh, as we as a lot of movies that I was into at that time, and think about how influential like even talking to my brother not about this movie but just like the kinds of things like my brother commented that he listened to our rocky podcast mm. and you had commented that there was a period of time where i dressed like rocky i wore like the black thing the black, yeah, yeah. The black jacket and the hat and, and all this stuff and my brother said he found that really funny because he you know he dressed that way because of like drugstore cowboy and you were talking about how like after reservoir dogs everybody kind of dressed you know, with the black suits and the and the ties and stuff. And looking back now and thinking, like, you know, I think I, don't know, I could be wrong, but I think it's pretty safe to say that, like, we there's a whole generation of guys that had like weird man crushes on Michael Madsen because of this movie. Yeah, he was because he had that look at the time of like I mean, that he was, was back a good in style. looking guy, and he was cool. In that that movie. came back in style, having the big the big sideburns, and I mean, you look on like Vince Vaughn mimics that almost in Swingers. And uh, you have a whole bunch of movies, like, you know, that kind of a look. Yeah. Where it's the, you know, nowadays everything is trimmed. So everybody has, like, the tight shirts, even if it's a suit or suit jacket yeah, or yeah. pants. Where everything's baggy. He's got this jacket. He kind of has that James Dean 50s rebel kind of a look. And he looks so ultra cool. You know, cool as a cucumber in a, in a, in a bowl of hot sauce. You know, <laughs> you know, all that, you know. So, and then... To find out he is a psychopath. He's like, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, and he just says, I'm, I don't care. I'm going to just torture you anyway. And he starts torturing him. And like I said, he, you have no qualms that, yes, he will light the guy on fire if, if uh, Mr. Orange didn't stop him, which yeah. is another surprise. That comes out of right field. Yeah, you know, yeah. he, he unloads it. I love that. See, and this is, I realized watching this movie since we just said that we haven't watched it so many years, this was the first time I watched it widescreen. Because yeah, every, I was wondering that too when I watched Because it was when wider. We were, it's when quite we were wide. watching it. And I because I was thinking, like, I don't know if... I mean, I saw it at the... I saw, like I said, I saw a screening of it at the theater. Okay. So, obviously, I saw it in widescreen yeah. then. But in terms of watching it... Because I was looking at it, I was like... We've only known it 4-3. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing. Yeah. Same, uh, same thing while we were So, there were shots that I knew really well. That, like, the sequence where... Um, the camera is in the hallway almost like it's creeping like yeah, you're yeah. you know and it comes out and then um mr white is talking to mr pink off screen saying are you cool and then you yeah, see him yeah. smash stuff in the widescreen i never saw his reflection reflection on the uh on the uh tiles doing that yeah, yeah you know and i was like oh you know so there's all these little things i was picking up on so when mr orange unloads the clip into mr blonde i always love that it took the camera that long to pan around, pan or dolly around him, and to get him into frame that he was still walking back and just fell. Finally, yeah, yeah. He, you know, took the whole clip out. You know, and uh, they say that um, uh, they had another song in mind. They were going to use maybe "Ballroom Blitz" by uh, by Sweet. That was going to be on. Well, throw back to our Wayne's yeah. world. <laughs> and I don't know if that would have worked as well. You know, I mean, I mean, I guess it would have set a different tone, but I like the idea of the juxtaposition of a song like "Stuck in the Middle with You" yeah, yeah. to such a horrifying act. Ballroom Blitz would have seemed added a little more like intensity, rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like like it, like the camera could have started shaking. You know, like <laughs> like for a montage sequence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all these things are just so interesting to come back and like you know, uh, I've always loved the aspect that um, I guess people don't pick up on that they're in a mortuary. Yeah, and I thought that was so fascinating because I, I was a big fan of cars and Cadillacs when I was little so pretty early on I recognized that he was sitting on the back of a hearse a Cadillac hearse and that's when I realized everything standing were just wrapped up coffins yeah yeah I thought that was great and then were there Mr. Pink and Mr. White are talking that's like in the embalming room mm -hmm. you know so I found that great locations for the movie 
Uh, I like the idea, which I think some people can pick up on, that Tim Roth's apartment, he has a big fascination with the Fantastic Four and Marvel. Yeah. So his his apartment's colored like the Fantastic Four with the blue and the gold trim. Yeah. Well, you I know. mean, I always remember the the Silver Surfer poster. Yeah, and then he talks about the thing. He, motherfucker you know, looks just like the, the thing. thing. He looks like the motherfucker looks <laughs> like the thing. You know, I don't know why he has an Irish accent in that movie. <laughs> Motherfucker! I'm trying to watch it. It hits me like a bucket of water. <laughs> like a bucket of water. Like a bucket of water. They know, man. They know. You know. So, um, uh, and that was, I guess, they shot that in the apartment above the warehouse. So they had this this set. And then I think a lot of people know too that there was an earthquake in the late '90s that destroyed the warehouse that they shot in. Uh, it was they shot in July and August, so it was really hot there in the summer. Yeah. So they were all sweating their asses off. Um, all the suits were given to him by uh, whoever designed them, and except um, Kaitel wears a, his own design suit by a, a specific designer. But I guess each suit is different in its own way. Maybe to to um, uh, go along with everyone's physique. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But like all these little weird things in there. The other big cra- crazy thing going on is is uh, Lawrence Tyranny. How crazy he was, and yeah. people always talk about. There was a great. Ten years after the movie came out, when I was working at the video store, they released all these special editions of, of 10-year anniversaries of Reservoir Dogs on DVD. And they had multiple covers. You can get the Mr. Orange, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde. Yeah. And I remember the big talk on the street when I was at the video store was like, the real hard one to get is going to be the Mr. Brown, the Quentin Tarantino one. Yeah, yeah. So I got that one because I worked there. I was able to grab one off the shelf. And I don't know if I've even opened it. But that had a second disc, and they do all these great... You know, behind the scenes, they talk to everybody about the movie and all that. And they all talk about how hard it was to work with Lawrence Tyranny, that he was forgetting lines. He was a drunker. He'd get into fist fights with people. There's a, they were drinking during the day with him, and they, he walked out of the bar, and they came out, and he's got his pants down, like, pissing in the sidewalk. Yeah. Uh, they say he got arrested, and they literally had to post bail, and they had to get him out of bail bonds, and they had to bring him right to set the bail arrangement to, to, to work and uh, Quentin Tarantino fired him after a couple of days because he was so unorthodox and and uh, he was just a real scrapper you know near the end of his life you know he'd been in movies for close to 60 years at that point yeah, yeah. you know so he was such a legend that they were you know and everybody was getting into issues with him uh, so all the little things in the movie it's it's it and another thing we're talking about soundtracks there's not one like a score in the movie yeah, you know, it's all, and I think it's the same thing with maybe Pulp Fiction. I think so. And Jackie I Brown. I mean, he didn't really start using scores until maybe Kill Bill. <clears throat> Kill Bill, but even then, he was just recycling yeah, existing Maury Cohn and whatever else. <laughs> existing cues that it were in other movies like Entity or or some Fabio Frizzy stuff. Yeah, which is completely like works completely for him. Yeah, I mean, it's, you his, know? it's his style. Um, I mean, he didn't have like an original score written until Hateful Eight. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and even that is not completely original because even that has cues from the thing that aren't <laughs> that didn't get you. Uh, they mentioned Jackrabbit Slims, which is another Pulp Fiction reference. Uh, I, I just love the world he creates. All these people live in the same world, and I, I say this a lot that I would love to sit down with people like him, with George R. R. Martin <clears throat> or J.K. Rowling. Uh, J.K.? J.R.? J.K. Rowling. I think it's J.K. To just learn the process of how they sit down and write a script or write a book. I, I find that's hugely fascinating to, to come up with the development of the, in their head of, of plotting and stuff. Um, I mean, there's a lot of movies that uh, are talked about as being influences or maybe that he stole from. I mean, like we were saying earlier, he's... I think he's part of this like first real wave of video store 
generation uh, guy. So he he definitely, and I don't think he'll he has ever denied the fact that he 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 takes little things from everything he's ever seen. And so, but I wouldn't call them. I think <clears throat> maybe it's more like 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 homages. Yeah, you know? yeah. I don't think he's. I don't think it's it's like uh, ripping anything off. I think he's just their influences on him, and so those kinds of things make it in to their uh, makes it into his movies. But I remember even when we were in in film school that there was uh, somebody who was kind of very uh, against this movie because in his mind it was like just this ripoff of City on Fire that yeah. that, that Chow fat movie um, which by the way is so different than this movie like well, I don't know if you of... can that's the thing is if, it, if you get into like the aspect of undercover cop movies there's only really like one compelling undercover cop story which is someone's over undercover and they become friends with it. <laughs> You know, we see it in Donnie Brasco. We see it, uh, uh, you know, in in, in, or the, in City on, on Fire. Or, or the confliction they have with, with like, like, you know, um, State of Grace or well, not so much cruising, but the idea of that now the cop has become conflicted of turning these people in. Maybe you get that with Yeah, well, that's what Johnny I mean. Yeah. Like having affection for yeah. the people that you're there to yeah to bust, you know. And, and so... Uh, there's a little bit of that here. It's a very minor thing, but that's really the biggest part of City on Fire. So the the, the, the thing on City on Fire, it's this Chinese film from 1987 that stars Chow Yun-Fat, um, is that you have like a, a jewelry heist gone wrong, but we see the heist. And then there's this aspect of uh, the camaraderie that, that an undercover cop f- uh, forms with with one of the people that he's there to bust. Yeah. And then there's like an end and how that, and how that ends with like a Mexican standoff type thing. Um, you mentioned the, the killing Sandy Kubrick's killing as being a big influence. Well, that has a big, I love that in early high school before I saw this. And that's a big thing where I don't know if people have seen it. Sterling Hayden, Elijah Cook jr. And that's a horse track robbery during a horse race. And yeah. they're all wearing masks and it's really crazy looking because there were it's a kind of ahead of its time. And I, if I remember correctly, I haven't seen it in twenty years. And this movie made me want to go watch it again. I think it's told non-linearly. Yeah, yeah. Like it starts <clears throat> off, and there's very great camera work. And it's another thing where Sterling Hayden is Hayden is bringing people and don't know. They're all people who don't know each other are going to participate in this crime. Yeah. Um, and then one cock up leads to the whole thing falling apart. Uh, the another great undercover cop movie White Heat with James Cagney except that guy who's the undercover cop doesn't have any qualms about yeah he becomes friendly with the, the Cody Jarrett the psychopath but he realizes that once you know I have to do this because this guy's yeah. a fucking nutcase you know uh, uh, Rafifi's another big movie that people talk about that great foreign Italian movie that uh, I think it's Italian maybe it's French uh, that, that that is an influence in this movie yeah and, yeah and um, Asphalt Jungle is another huge movie I love which I think also has Sterling Hayden in it another you know a heist movie yeah yeah but yeah. uh and you know and the idea of like the names being colors is from a movie that you and i have of great affection for taking yeah a Pelham, one, two, which three. i never saw until after college i don't think i think i until it got a dvd release i've always known that from the sure shot beastie yeah. boys you know it's like the taking of the pelham one two three if you got the rhyme come see me and then i knew that line and then when i saw oh and so then when you and i watched the movie yeah, Nobody yeah. even watched it together. I was like, oh, Mr. White, Mr. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. they all have the names. And uh, they say that there's influence on the torturing of the cop. There's influences from the movie The Big Combo and also Django, which we all know that Quintino has an yeah. affection for that but he movie. Did, but then he completely changed Django. Yeah, yeah. It's like the, his remake of Inglorious Bastards. It just takes the name and completely changes yeah. it. 
And then people always cite this movie called Kansas City Confidential, but I never saw it, so I don't know. I've seen it years ago. I don't remember too much. I get that mixed up with this other movie called Gun Crazy, where it's like a, a boyfriend and girlfriend go start robbing banks and it all falls apart. Yeah. That but that, I mean, that's kind of the, be- the kind of the beauty that you were talking about earlier with, you know, this made you go and investigate Harvey Hytel and this stuff. And they, you could also look at it that way. That happened to me with the blues. It was like falling in love with the music of Eric Clapton. And then he seeing the influences on that made me go backwards and fall in love with Freddie King and B.B. King. And yeah, Guy and that's what happened to me with The Doors. I, yeah. I, I, when The Doors, I was like, oh, they're, they're covering a blues song. Who is that? Backdoor Man's by Holland Wolf or, or um, yeah. Will, uh, Willie Dixon. And then you go... Billy, yeah, yeah. who's Billy? Who's BB King? Who's Muddy Waters? Who's um, uh, the, what's his face? Uh, harmonica player hitting the head with a hammer. Uh, son, Sons, Sonny Boy Williamson. Yeah, Sonny Boy Williamson, or, or um, yeah, um, I think it's somebody else. The guy who got hit in the head with a hammer. Little Walter. Little Walter. That's it. Little Walters. You know, but you. That's how. Yeah, you just. I guess that's with anything. If you, yeah, yeah. You're a fan. Well, of, that's what I mean. Know, like this. Yeah. These are all great movies to go investigate. If you're into this, you know. If you love Reservoir Dogs and you haven't gone back... If you love kind of, Reservoir Dogs. And you haven't gone back and then kind of... And me, you know, I, I have a huge affinity for older movies, and I think it's such a great... You know, after World War II, when you had really established film noir movies, there was this kind of a subgenre in the late 40s and early 50s of these heist films, like we've just been saying. Yeah, the yeah. Asphalt Jungle and The Killing. And they're so beautifully shot, you know, with the black and white and stuff. And, I, and you get... An installment every five or ten years, you know, maybe Michael Mann does Heat or he does like Thief. Yeah. But it's such a, or you get like a, the, what's the name of that? One, one last heist. <laughs> yeah, you know, or there's movie heist or there's the <clears throat> the Italian job, which is kind of a spoof. It's that I don't really enjoy the original as much as other people do. Yeah. You know, but like a good, I, I always enjoy a good heist movie that's done, you know, that isn't cliche. Well, by that's now. the thing. I mean, you got a built in suspense. You know, you have a built in set piece yeah. that's, I mean, this is playing on that, which is kind of great, like we said, where you don't actually see the heist but um it, you know it's 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 ripe it's full of of potential drama and suspense yeah and, and that's a great set piece for for cinema um robert kurtzman he said he would do the effects for free on this movie if quentin tarantino wrote him from dust till dawn and tarantino started writing from dust till dawn and then i don't know if he just <clears throat> stopped and then later on wrote it in 1996 for robert rodriguez that whole it's kind of cloudy for me with I know he wrote Natural Born Killers, and he had the idea if he wanted to be the Robert Downey Jr. character that didn't go right, and I think he has some sort of weird animosity with the avenue Oliver Stone took with it, and then True Romance was done. Originally, it was written non-linearly like Reservoir Dogs, but Tony Scott took it and made it chronological, so I wonder, once he had this under his belt, yeah, you know, he this is this was going to be his baby, and he didn't want anybody fucking with it, you know, as people... Hollywood will. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, at the beginning of the movie, during the the opening scene, which is almost like an homage to like the Wild Bunch, another big Western favorite of mine. The original s- song they said they were going to be on it was Pink Floyd's "Money" when he's yeah. when they're walking down the road, and then instead he heard Little Green Bag on the radio and changed it up. Um, uh, a lot of weird things. Like this is this is called out of all those movies we've talked about. This is called the number one independent movie of all time by Empire Magazine. Yeah. And I guess you think about all the movies out there, like the Brothers McMullen or the Funeral or all those really in the weeds independent films that came out of that era. That this yeah. is the one that cited as well. The for number instance, one. like this came out in nineteen ninety two and was the buzz of the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah. Everybody was like talking about Reservoir Dogs. This Reservoir Dogs. This that you know, and it was. You know, nominated for in many categories, and it didn't win anything. Yeah, um, I think In the Soup won that year by uh, Alexander Rockwell, which is a movie that I actually like a lot. That I think 
Buscemi's also in. Which one? Uh, in the Soup. Okay. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, Seymour yeah, yeah, Cassell. Uh, maybe he's not in that, but uh, he might be in another movie with Seymour Cassell. But uh, I, I I remember liking In the Soup a lot. But it was one of those things where, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, I think, was told later he, he really wanted to win because he was told basically he was like a shoe-in. And I think he was told, like, uh, by, you know, like, you didn't win because you didn't need it. You know, like, you're... You, we already like everybody knew that you were going to go on. Yeah, but is that more of like us like the, Disney? These, these other films like needed the support. These filmmakers needed support. Like you didn't, which is kind of a cop out. I understand the. I can understand the reasoning, but, but is it's that also the, kind is of that shitty. the Disney reference of like him not winning Snow White? They give him an honorary Oscar anyway, and he's like, well, I don't want an honorary <laughs> Oscar. I want the best, you know, best picture that year, yeah, thirty-eight yeah. or thirty-nine. You know, um, I don't really know. Uh, so then, the, the, you know, we, we get after Blonde kills Mr. Orange, he admits to, to uh, Marvin Nash that he's a cop. And Marvin then, Nash. Marvin Nash. Um, <laughs> Freddie Noondike. Oh, Freddie Noondike. Um, and it's always amazing that people still, like, you know, forget or not, you know, when you're first viewing, it's up in the air. You don't really know who's a cop. And I remember when I first saw this, I had. Yeah. Spoiler. They, they take him out of the equation and Mr. White's the first one to stick up for him. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of like, oh yeah, he might not. So you're trying to figure out who could be a cop. And then, so when it's a, it's a great device of how he, you know, he kills blonde. And, yeah. It's you know, tough to separate it from like, I'm like, I can't remember what it was like to see it for the first I time. I remember it being a shock. It being unre- having it be revealed that you way. You know, you're like, I had a thought about him, but then, you know, you didn't, they kind of, he did a great job in this script of taking him out of the yeah. equation so you're only focusing on blonde white and uh orange the relationship between white and pink. orange is odd uh right from the get-go in that opening scene i mean i get it it's, it's just a, it's a lot of weird choices well there's a lot of um, which maybe maybe those were the right choices and that you know i wouldn't even think to a second about any of those scenes if they were played with less odd you're gonna be okay you're gonna oh be yeah okay. i know <laughs> say the fucking words you know but even more there's kind of a uh like a homoeroticism of yeah. it, but not or like a Lenny, uh, you know, like a of mice and men type. Oh, uh, yeah, thing. yeah. I mean, he does like Tim Roth seems like he's slow in that, like he's a kid or childlike. Yeah, well, I th- yeah, it's like a, there's a, like a mentor kind of relationship yeah, yeah. there. Where <laughs> he's like combing his hair and he whispers. Well, yeah, that's like, another <laughs> thing. He laughs, and like, you don't know really what they goofy. say. That there's 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 different conjecture of what he what he says there in that in the uh, the whisper. Some people say uh, that he says you don't want a blowjob too. By the way, and, and that's in the in the French version. It's dubbed. He says, you don't want a blowjob, uh, by the way. And then that's what makes him laugh. In the Italian version, he says, do you want me to give you a hand job too? And then in the Spanish dub version, it comes up saying, I'll comb your hair so you can look handsome. You know, and those are the lines that we don't know that are speculated upon yeah, that yeah. he says there. Um, Eddie Bunker, who plays Mr. Uh, Blue, he also wrote uh, Animal Factory, the uh, prison movie, which... Steve Buscemi ended up directing, which came out in like 2001 or two with Willem Dafoe and um, what's it, D- Danny Trejo, but then what's his face from um, Terminator 2, the kid, John, Eddie Furlong. Oh, yeah, Eddie Furlong. And Eddie Bunker talks about there is kind of a, a, a homoerotic relationship between the Willem Dafoe character and the uh, Eddie Furlong character, but that's not acted upon. And I kind of see here, it's, you know, 
it, it doesn't develop it as quick as you, I think you would need to nowadays, but it seems automatically they gravitate towards each other and they become like a father-son, uh, you know, the apprentice to like a master relationship. Yeah, so yeah. that when uh, he gets shot, Mr. White automatically feels guilty about it where, you know, it, it's almost like it doesn't take him a lot to kind of succumb to like the the idea that, you know, it's his fault or he feels bad or he's got to take mm-hmm. a, you know, where nowadays you think that the guy would be more like, well, you know, it's your fault, you're fucked deal with it on your own and Tarantino talks about I guess in the director's commentary that the biggest question he gets from this movie is people ask him at the about at the end why do people why did he why did Mr. Orange tell Mr. White in the last scene that he's a cop and Tarantino says well if you don't understand that you don't understand the movie or it's like it was like a man thing he had he felt like he had to you know it's because they've become friends yeah yeah they've transcended together he had to Tell him I'm a cop. I, yeah, I am a cop, Larry. You know, which is kind of sad at the end because you have this, you know, you, you really feel bad for Mr. White because he was trying to like, you know, be the good guy and take him to a hospital, stick up for him. Yeah. And you wonder if the, if the situation went any differently if, if Mr. Uh, Orange would let Mr. White go. You know, maybe they developed this. There was that, you know, you're saying that conflicted kind of a, uh, uh, you know, uh, script you know, ism where, you know, the, the, the sub subplot is that, okay, he lets him go, but he gets everybody else. Yeah. You know, um, they, they explain away the idea of the, uh, of the, remember the huge conjecture of who shot nice guy, Eddie. Yeah. yeah. That used to be shit that would show up everywhere on shirts and stuff. And they talk about Chris Penn said that, I guess his squib went off first by mistake. Yeah. So Mr. White. No, it was like, uh, wasn't it, uh, like Kaitel's went off first because he was supposed to kill Joe and then shoot and then turn and shoot uh, Chris Penn, but his squib went off after he shot Joe. Joe. So, so Mr. Kaitel's squib goes off first, I think. Yeah, and then he, he so he just reacts to it and never shoots Chris. He Penn. shoots again, but he's, he's not aiming at him. And then Sean and then Chris Penn gets shot and kind of falls. So that's yeah, kind of yeah. the spelling like rumor. that. And then I've always known that you know. Uh, Listening to the movie growing up, if you listen to like the back right speaker, you can hear that Mr. Pink gets out of there, gets into a shootout with the cops and yeah, lives. He's yeah. like, I'm shot, God damn it. You can hear him like, get out of the car and all that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Over the dialogue of Mr. White Steve moaning. Is so good in this. Yeah, he really is. And he really has a great, uh, the paranoia aspect that, you know, that we've known to love him in, in those early roles. And he's, f- and he, his job is to kind of, his job is not a, his job is a thankless job in this movie, and that it's he is the one that needs to kind of set up a lot of exposition, even if he's not saying it, but prompt it out yeah. of Kaitel and and without it, it sounding like exposition. Yeah, and he's just he does a really great job. He's so good in this movie. He's probably the best, in my opinion. Has the toughest job yeah. to do, and 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 maybe does the best job of doing it, which. Uh, you know, having to bring up like you know the cops. I'm not saying that they, I'm not saying they weren't there, but I'm saying they didn't. They didn't make they themselves yeah, known. No, they, <laughs> yeah, and, and he's also the voice of reason. Yeah, too. he's like you know, like I feel really bad. You know, <laughs> I feel horrible about. It, but I, you know, if they if they catch you, that means they're one step closer. Yeah, to me. and he says, yeah, you can't. Yeah, and then yeah, when he finds out that he gave him his name, he's like, we can't turn him into a hostile. But a minute or before, he was saying we could. Yeah, so yeah. all that works great. Uh, and it's a hard, that's a hard role to pull off. I mean, I remember the, uh, the story of being a member in, uh, in high school and I'm, I'm going to Italy and then, uh, I don't even need to tell the story now, but Warren Munson, remember Warren yeah, Munson, yeah. you know, but that's how, you know, it's like, you know, these, these, 
it's just a really, you know, it's a it's a really unforgiving part. And if you got someone in there who didn't, you know, who wasn't good at it, it, it took somebody with the talent that he has <clears throat> and being cast so right for that part to make that part stand out. Yeah, that he does he does it. And doesn't come right. off as he doesn't come off sleazy, you know, or anything, you know, uh, weird. You know, he does. He's not. You know, he he plays the part perfectly the yeah, paranoia yeah. aspect of and then being only the real guy with a sense of reason and logic like why, why are we s- sitting here like you know we completely agree with them why you the, the safe house could be compromised yeah, yeah. he's like but, look i stashed some if you want to come with me yeah we'll, we'll go right now we'll go but, right now we'll split it we'll go separate ways uh they talk about and and i don't know if this is true but i guess it is because i heard it in so many different places that michael matson really had a problem with the whole torture sequence with uh the guy who um who played the cop in the movie, the uh, Kirk Baltz, who played Marvin Nash, that he had a really hard time with the whole torture sequence. And then the cop, Kirk Baltz, ad-libs, I got a little wife and kid at home. Yeah. And that they actually had to stop the take. Like, Matt, Matson got, like, too overwhelmed. And evidently, it's really, I, I always find it interesting to find out, I forget the actor's name now, but he's, he's passed away, but he's the bad guy in Invasion USA, the guy with the burnt face who yeah, shows yeah. him the rod of zombies Halloween. But you find out these stories, like Randy Jurgensen, our friend, told us that, like, he was a pacifist. Yeah. But he ends up playing these horrible people, like, you know, and he, he's shooting bazookas at houses and stuff, <laughs> you know, in, in, in Invasion USA. And then you have a guy like Michael Matson who's supposedly, you know, complete nonviolent. He doesn't like guns. He doesn't like all this. But then he's playing these horrible people in the yeah, movies. Yeah. So it's funny to see these dichotomies yeah. where he's he's supposedly affected by this what this cop is saying, but the reverse of it, he's playing this psychopath who yeah. doesn't care. We, you know? should, we should give a shout out to Michael Madsen in that I think he has like a whole business of hot sauces. If you're in does hot, he? I think, you know, we should throw throw some plugs his way. I believe Michael Madsen has like a whole line. Of I'm hot a huge sauces. hot sauce guy, so I should get on. I should. I just should have known that. That's like what's his face, uh, uh, Billy Mitchell from freaking uh, Fistful of Quarters. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's yeah. got that hot sauce business down in Florida. I think. I think he has. I think Michael Madsen has. A hot well, we sauce should, business. or we should go online after this and order us some <laughs> Michael Madsen hot sauce, and people should check that out. Uh, I liked how they had a paramedic on set too to to, to advise Tim Roth's bleeding, it, so, so it'd be realistic that yeah. he would be realistic losing this much of blood uh, at a time like that. Uh, yeah, and I don't think anybody plays a bad part in the movie. The only problem I used to have with this movie watching it because I, you know, like I said, I watched the shit out of it growing up in high school. I would get bored in the flashback sequences because they would slow the movie down. So Mr. White's isn't that long. Mr. Blonde's is a little longer. But then when you get after yeah. the whole... You see that, Daddy? <laughs> yeah, you know, after you get past that... He tried to fuck me. After the, you get past... Chris Penn is great in this Oh, he's, movie he's amazing. He's, 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 and that's his own track suit, they said, too, because yeah, they wear their yeah. own clothes, you know? He's so great in this movie. Um, after... Orange kills Mr. Blonde. They go to Mr. Orange's flashback sequence. I always thought that was slowed it's down long, a bit. but I had a big appreciation of the evolution of the commode story this time. Oh, him trying to figure around. It out. Well, just like how it. What's an anecdote? <laughs> you know, just like how it goes from rehearsal to reciting it to, you know, uh, him telling it for real to then being a dramatization Remember of what they sang and then him saying it within it. It was a very. It's probably the most cinematic part of the movie. Yeah. And then he he, he uh, he's questioned about it, and he has an answer. Like, why can't you ask this guy? He he's a, he has an answer yeah. for it. And then it does get what well, you're saying. It is very cinematic because when it breaks like that fourth wall, and it becomes almost like a stage play when yeah, it gets yeah. to the the bathroom and the dog, and then the, he's talking to them, and it's it's very bold how he shot it like that. 
you know, to have it because that's that's really a, a bold idea that you're going to have it in a sequence have Tim Roth talking to the because it's not it's all in Tim Roth's yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very um, neat and ingenious way at the time of you know shooting it that way and having it dramatized. You know. Yeah, and, it's really I I really enjoyed watching kind of like the brilliance of telling that having that scene play out kind of so cinematically because in a lot of ways the rest of the movie isn't that cinematic like you said it's very much it's almost theatrical i mean well, it's no really just two guys and yeah. the camera's there covering the action no it's one's weird. really nothing really going on um with it so uh the movie ends up coming out but there's no advertising here in the states so it kind of comes and goes but they advertise the shit out of it in england and it becomes like a huge hit in england but then because of the english laws it's banned on dvd and it doesn't come out on dvd till like 95 or something you know uh it's funny because i was just watching vhs vhs i'm sorry um i was watching the uh we always talk about how crazy the english controversial laws yeah, on it. Yeah, yeah. And nasties uh, and whatnot. Yeah, and it's funny that like I was watching that one of the Ouija board horror movies and they actually in, in England they banned the sale or of a Ouija board. Ouija. And I'm like, why would and it's it's like, oh I guess they've been at their country's been at it a little longer. They had to deal with pagans and black magic. <laughs> you know Well that's a funny you thing. Know, when, like I went to think about, when I went to England in uh, in October you know, we did tours and stuff, and for the most part, everybody was really nice. But a lot of the tour guides had a, you know, they like to bust on the Americans of like, you don't know history, like we got history, you don't have history, because because America's so young, yeah, in comparison. And I felt like saying, yeah, but like your history is so fucking dark, man. It's terrible. Like everything, they, it's all like it's. <laughs> It's like beheadings and and Jack the Ripper and it's like like yeah like okay you're right we don't are, comparatively we don't have a lot of history a little, but everything you're talking about is really fucked up dude like is dark. that is that really something you want to sell that's right? why, that's why they're banning Ouija boards because they don't want black magic and that's why you know that they're, they're this kind of stuff with ultra violence with like a movie like Straw Dogs or this you know so there was a lot of time where they you know even though it was hugely popular in the cinema. <laughs> That it was it was banned for a little while coming out, so uh, yeah, and this and it came out and then and then it's it's uh, it was it was huge at the time. But I wonder if a lot of people like in our um, capacity saw it only because of the success of Pulp Fiction. Uh, that could be. It really could be. Like I mean, I, said, I don't think I saw it until. Pulp Fiction. I mean, clearly, I mean, eventually, had something else of that era stood out of independent '90s cinema, probably would have been made aware of kind of the brilliance of Reservoir Dogs and, and checked it out. But it was really Pulp Fiction that propelled that era of '90s, that boom of '90s independent cinema into the mainstream. Yeah. And it was like, oh, you know, there was a lot of great stuff happening, but you almost had to be in the know. If you were in like the suburbs, you might not know about it. But it wasn't until Pulp Fiction happened where it was like it's thrust everything into the mainstream. Like, oh, my God, there's this guy, from, uh, you know, that made this crazy El Mariachi movie. It's an action movie that made for like $7,000. And then that and then he ends up very quickly kind of like remaking that as a sequel with Desperado, with Antonio Banderas after that. Um, Robert Rodriguez. Yeah, Robert Rodriguez. And it just... You know, and then, of course, uh, you know, From Dust Till Dawn and uh, Pulp Fiction changed. That's another movie I haven't seen in 30 years. <laughs> From Dust Till Dawn? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I used to love that movie. That was probably my favorite movie of all these movies. I wonder if it, how it would hold up now because of that whole, you know, it's very... And there's a TV show now. Oh, yeah, I you're right. Yeah, and, seen, and there's like three or four sequels. Yeah, which we watched one of them we watched strictly the, because Bruce Campbell's in the opening scene. Yeah, <laughs> that got very tedious, that movie. With it was all a, the gimmicky was, shots. Yeah, it was a gimmick shot movie. Yeah. Uh, and now the title of this the title of this movie, Reservoir Dogs, I've always thought was... It's one of these things where it's like preposterous just to just come up with a weird title and stick it on because then you're going to have to try to explain your way to investors. Like, what does the title mean? You're like, well, uh. but I, there's a lot of rumors where I guess he was at a video store and uh, I had a, a, a reporter I used to work with, Bob Sellers, who was a local reporter in the early 90s and he used to go to that video store and he said, you remember Quentin Tarantino? Great guy, always ask, always recommending stuff. He was that dude that like every week someone would come in like, give me a new recommendation. Like much what you hear. Yeah. You know, that he was always the one to like this or that and the other thing. And I guess he he recommended a French film uh, to some guy and the guy misheard what he said and then he translated the, the, the title as Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. You know, and then that's where he says he got the idea from. But then he said... There's, there's a lot of different stories. He told backers that like, like uh, in a lot of French films, like maybe Rafifi and stuff, they, they it's it's a Reservoir Dog is another name for like a rat, and like it's a rat. But then they say that he made that up because he knew the backers wouldn't be as knowledge or versed in those yeah, films yeah. as he is. So there's a lot of and there's also uh, the rumor that he had a girlfriend that recommended the same French movie to him, and he misheard and it. He misheard it as Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, and, and, and the American translation so of the title. We may never know uh, the truth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we will have to go Mr. ask Mr. Owl. Or Mr. Turtle. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, uh, Michael Fassbender, who uh, is a guy I love, the, the Irish actor who now people love. You know, he's an old... He put on a... Uh, in 1995, he put a stage production on of it himself in, in Killarney, where he's from, of this, uh, how influential it was at the time. There was a video game for a minute that came out in flops because it was ultra-violent, so people, like, you know, were against it, I guess. Yeah. Maybe in 95 or so, it was often like maybe like the Grand Theft Auto kind of scheme where you just beat up and torture people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's where people weren't um, as, uh, you know, as versed in violence as they are nowadays, which is kind of funny. Uh, people might also recognize Lawrence uh, Tyranny. He's in two episodes of Seinfeld as Elaine's uh, father. He uh-huh. shows up in that one. I think that's the one about with. Um, Jerry's about the jacket, remember? Yeah, he turned the, the leather, jacket inside the, out. Yeah, the leather jacket. And he keeps getting suede it wet. Jacket yeah, and then Laura's tyranny's like, what's wrong with you wearing suede in the rain or some kind of joke like that? Um, I love the idea that in 2012, uh, Los Angeles County Museum of Art and director Jason Reitman cast a complete black cast in the movie. Uh, and they did one of these, I guess they do these script read table reads all the time. People mm-hmm. can go watch and see, you know, uh, sometimes I find that sounds pretentious, but other times it sounds like it could be cool. I don't know. Like, I think, I think at some point, like our buddy Mike, Mike Morona? did like a lost script or somebody wrote like another script for Pete and Pete. Oh, and he went and, and did they one all of these went reads? and did the, they all got back together and did like a live. He's another guy that we've talked so much about a film school at the beginning of this cast. We met him in film school. Yeah. yeah. He became a great friend of ours. We're uh, hoping know. to get him, have him come on and talk, talk about, about something that he, a movie that he loves a yeah. lot. So we'll Either see. something he's done or maybe see if he'll talk about something he has a lot of passion yeah, for. We'll yeah. have to see what he's, what he's into. Uh, but he's got a podcast now. What has he got? The, the Further the, Adventures. Uh, the Adventures of Danny and Mike. Yeah, with his uh, Danny, uh, I was going to say Danny Bonaduce. <laughs> <laughs> 
what's his name from Pete and Pete? Uh, Danny Trejo <laughs> from yeah. Pete and Pete. But anyway, this this table reading they had Lawrence Fishburne as Mr. White, Terrence Howard as Mr. Blonde, Anthony Mackie as Mr. Pink, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Mr. Orange, Chili uh, McBride as Joe. Anthony Anderson is Nice Guy Eddie, and then Common played Mr. Brown and Officer Nash, and then Patton Oswalt played Holdaway, which is the cop, his friend. And I think that sounds like an awesome, you know, and I think that would be, if I'm not one to first say, let's, you know, remake this, remake that, but if they remade this and kind of completely uh, went that route, I think that might be really cool. I mean, on a related note, this viewing, because it's been so long since I've seen it, I found the amount of times the N-word was used. Listen. Kind of shocking. Okay. That's, this is something I, I wrote down that I wanted to talk about. And, and I find it really weird with Quentin Tarantino and his use of the N-word in movies. And then this goes back to the night I saw Pulp Fiction. When I was watching Pulp Fiction in the theater, when you get to the scene where they, they shoot... Um, What's his face? Oh, I shot him in the head. Marvin. I shot Marvin. I said, Marvin, yeah, I shot Marvin in the head. Uh, when they get to Quentin Tarantino's house and the word... The, Marvin, you think God <laughs> came down from heaven and... Uh, but like the amount of uses of the word nigger in the movie, and then he's not saying nigga, he's yeah. saying it ER. I found that disturbing back then. Like, yeah. I, you know, and then in this movie... I find like it dead nigger story. Yeah, yeah, but he says it like five yeah, or six yeah. times. I don't have a sign. I said, it, and he's talking to a black guy. Yeah, yeah. And I find that so racist. Maybe it's me because I'm a white boy, but I grew up. I was the only white kid in the neighborhood when I grew up in New Haven. I was, you know, I surrounded with other African Americans, and race to me never seemed like a thing. Yeah, yeah. But for him to use it like that, and then you get into this movie where I can kind of see where he's saying that, like, you know, maybe people like this would talk like that. You know, that would have this phobia. But then he gets into using it all the time and it got to me like where that thing where when Django came out I was almost on the bandwagon of like yeah I don't want to see him use it 105 or 6 times but then when you see Django you can understand it because it's in sort of like a slave context yeah, yeah. it's not used gratuitously but I never understood why he uses it so gratuitously in such a way and he doesn't get any shit from it I mean you, you had one guy um, uh, a New York Times uh, critic uh, I forget the, the guy's name. That he's the jazz critic with the big glasses, the black guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, his name escapes me. Um, but he made mention of it that this is an example of how you know white people look at black people in certain forms, and it's just a, I, it disturbs me. And it's almost like when I think you had the similar experience when we went and saw separately Transformers Two, where they had those blackface robots. <laughs> And I was like, this is so offensive. Yeah. Where yeah. they're like, I just don't know how to read. And it's like, but then there's people in the audience like, yo, these niggas are awesome. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so insanely offensive. Yeah, yeah. So I. It's such a weird I, I found thing it, in time. I found it so offensive, his use of it, not so much in this movie, but definitely Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, yeah. I was uncomfortable how he's saying it to a black person. And then I don't understand how no one ever takes umbrage with it. People are like, it's fine. And then he's kind of now endeared himself to the African-American culture where he's wearing um, Stanley Crouchman. Stanley Crouch is the, the New York Times reporter who kind of took a, uh, a little ombridge with it. But he kind of, Quentin Tarantino now, I don't know if he's, I wouldn't say he's doing it on purpose, and this is completely my own opinion, and I'm not disparaging yeah, yeah. him either way. But he kind of like, he knows that like, African-Americans have an affinity for his movies, so he kind of endears himself to the culture where I know he loves black exploitation movies and he loves similar movies like the martial arts and, you know, and hip-hop genre. But he, you know, he wears a lot of like Wu-Tang Clan stuff and all that. So people love him, but then they don't ever call him on like, why are you using this 
And I guess, you know, Django is a bad example because it was used so many times, but it is. But that's the only time where people really made a huge deal That's what I'm saying. But then when you watch that movie, if you make a big deal about it and not see the movie, I was the first one to say, yeah, I agree with it because of the examples I've just cited. But then when you go see Django, you see, oh, it's okay, it's not being used despairingly. It's just being used how it was back then. But these other movies, it's like, it does not, uh, Pulp Fiction does not need to have the N-word in it once. But he uses it repeatedly, like nigger, and it's yeah, like that's yeah. offensive. So I don't know how he's able to get get around that without people calling him out on it. So it's very, like you said, now like now when you watch it too, it's like whoa, 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 <laughs> yeah, this is this. I don't like that word. That word is you know brought out of suffering and a lot of other things. Yeah, but yeah. so yeah, that's a big topic of discussion I have. Where I love Quentin Tarantino, but I just don't understand how he's able to just so calmly do that and then get away with it like it's nothing. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's for people with bigger uh, salaries than us to, to ponder. So, uh, but yeah, anyway, so movie came out and it paved the way for, you know, for a decade to come. And like we said earlier, it's just amazing to think that the guy did, what, a handful of movies? And if you yeah. lo- love him or hate him, he changed the face of cinema. I think he's one of those guys, too, that has said he's going to do, like, X amount of movies and then he's going to retire. I guess he, he can. I always find that pompous, but I guess he can say that because of the popularity, and yeah. the, you know, the pain. I think his mentality is like he just doesn't want to be the guy that ends on a bad note. Yeah, I think he's you know, like even like, right? Yeah, or Billy Wilder. Yeah. You know, he made some, uh, you know, towards the end of their lives, they, they make movies that aren't as great as or as well regarded as their previous films. And I think he's just uh, because of such a, uh, he, him being such a lover of film, he's. Yeah, you know, aware. He's self-aware and no, and you know, he's like, I don't want to get to the point where I'm making stuff where everybody's like, ugh. But he's not. Pro- <laughs> Remember what great he used to be, like, almost he, like Woody Allen. Yeah, you know? but he's not prophetic in a way. He doesn't put out a lot of stuff. I mean, he's only putting one out. I mean, what does he have under ten movies out or whatever? He's probably I don't know. It's been a long time. Uh, he obviously, did. it's been twenty five years since Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. So and then prior 25th to that, anniversary. And uh, but you know, we had the two Kill Bills. You could maybe count them as one movie. You had the Grindhouse. Uh, Death the, Proof. Death Proof. You had him he wrote uh um and, and was co-starred from dust till dawn he uh punched up crimson tide and um the rock those action movies he kind of like just punched yeah, up but those don't really yeah. have anything to do with him he yeah, wrote, I mean, they're, they're not twin turn yeah, movies he wrote natural born killers and true romance natural born killers i had a big aversion to i saw that in the theater and i found that very disturbing that people were like into just these spree killings and yeah, i mean yeah. i know now you look at it it's a common on society and stuff like that but it's just that i found that kind of upsetting much like the uh, in the same world as the mr blonde torture yeah sequence but yeah i mean and then he's done jackie brown which wasn't his i mean it was his original script but he adapted it from elmore leonard and um uh what glorious else is he glorious bashes and hateful eight and those two inglorious and django were remakes i mean he departed well. from the source material <laughs> But yeah, in, in title. But I mean, that's another one where it's uh, Inglorious Pastors is like there's a lot of thing in there. Like, I want to see more of the the, the 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 Nazi hunters, those Jew guys. I don't care about the woman in the the whole second part with the woman in the theater. And, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes he's really critical, which I don't like. Where he there's an example of him really bad mouthing somebody's use of um, it might be an American Gigolo of uh, David Bowie's song. And he says, I'm going to use it the correct way. So he uses the David Bowie song in Inglorious Bastards, which I think is, to me is completely misplaced because I don't like 
having like you a know, period movie with with a modern mod- song yeah. that isn't of the era. Sure, yeah. it's one thing if you're doing like an homage to Jingle Reinhardt, and you're doing this, but then if you're putting a David Bowie song, an '80s pop song in the 1940s, so. Uh, and then also when I, you watch the Inglorious Bastards, I watch the the special features. He's there with the original director of the Italian version of it, which is basically a Dirty Dozen meets Kelly's Heroes, where they're robbing a train. Yeah. Like it's they get all these criminals together out to help rob this train, which might be like have like Nazi gold or whatever, or, or just stuff they've plundered. And uh, you could tell that the director of the Italian movie is there because you know he wouldn't be nobody would be looking at his movie if it's not for Quentin Tarantino. So thank yeah, God. Yeah. Oh, you know what it is? It's it's the special edition of the original *Inglorious Bastards*. If you watch that, there's the special feature of Quentin Tarantino sitting with that director, and it became very soon like Quentin Tarantino keeps like mentioning himself, like it's me, I did this, I, you know. And then the guy's like, "Yes, you did do this, Quentin. <laughs> yes, you, it's because of you that we have, we are watching this beautiful transfer of on Blu-ray." You know, yeah, so yeah. it's like, I don't know. I, he's, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I don't agree with stuff. Yeah, well, but, you know, it's kind of, he's a controversial figure. I yeah. mean, he used to aim, he's notorious for, if he got a bad review, he would go and, like, punch the critic in the face in a restaurant. Well, that's another thing, too. It's like, I don't like, yeah, and that gets into the realm with me where, you know, people may not like your movie. That doesn't mean that they're wrong. Or, I mean, it's one thing if they're complete, it's a hit job. Yeah, yeah. But if they, if somebody has an opposed opinion, you know, you can't just, my shit, I know my shit's better than that, you know? it's And then the, him being very... Like I heard recently in when he was doing either Django interviews or whatever, he was saying like he's the best director of all time or he was making <laughs> some really weird statements that like yeah, yeah. Hitchcock or whatever is nothing compared to him. And I forget if 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 I could remember it correctly it would be better, but I don't remember exactly the context. But he was making some pompous remarks. I was like, Why would he go say stuff like that? Then I saw Glorious Bastards, I'm like, It's an hour too long. It's a lot. I wish he just had a script. Somebody would sit down with him and say, You don't need this, you don't need that. Yeah. You know? I but then Saying that is I, I, I didn't want to watch Django. I kind of stayed away from it. I really enjoyed Django. I enjoyed Django as well. You know? And then I actually ended up really enjoying The Hateful Eight too for what it was. So it's like, you know, I don't think I'll ever watch uh, Inglorious Bastards again. But yeah, there's elements of that that were pretty cool. Yeah. You know? But uh, I love myself. My favorite movie of his, I think, is Jackie Brown. I love Jackie Brown. I haven't seen Jackie Brown since the movie theater. Yeah, I like that. Because it's not a Quentin Tarantino movie. It's him adapting Elmore yeah. Leonard. So that's kind of fun. And it has reference to... Out of sight because Michael Keaton yeah, plays, plays the, the same, same character, the right? FBI guy. Yeah, because it's Elmore Leonard again, who I think also did Get Shorty and the sequel to Get Shorty, the Get Somebody or Get Not Shorty, Get Not Shorty, Get Cute, Get Cool Cucumber. I forget what it's Get Cool. Maybe Something. could be Be Cool. Maybe it could be Be Cool. So, but yes. So this movie comes out. It's kind of a sleeper, I think, and. In the popular American scene, but it definitely gets him a lot of buzz, like you said, at Sundance. Uh, gets him a shitload of work because two years later he puts out Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction really just changed the whole face of stuff. He got a lot of nominations for that. Yeah, and that kind of set him on his journey. Well, of, that, that's can you know that's widely considered one of the I think in in the lists. As one of like the great American movies of all time, Pulp Fiction, you and I, you know, and it's again, it goes back to me with my friend seeing a preview for that in the theater before I knew anything about it, and I was like, "Wow, I haven't seen John Travolta since Look Who's Talking." You know, <laughs> since Look Who's Talking too. Yeah, and, I, and then I knew I knew Samuel L. Jackson from like Menace to Society or like freaking the Robber and McDowell's and yeah. Coming to America. So I was like, "Oh, it's them two. and it, it looked like weird, and he's got a weird afro, and John Travolta's got a weird hairstyle. I don't get it, and then. 
it blew up and it was you know it was great at the yeah. time yeah you know it's interesting it was something yeah so it, he certainly you know he made his mark in cinema and he did it the right way but it's one of these things where i think it's also the time and place you know he had the he, him being the video store generation um and then him having access to that and then him having access to these friends and if he didn't hook up with Harvey Keitel to help him get the financing to make this movie. If he just did the 30 grand black and white one with Lawrence Bender and, you know, what would have happened if not hooking up with Harvey Weinstein and it's all these what ifs. All these what ifs. Uh, so what do you think? What's your... I don't know. I mean, I don't... I mean, I guess that, you know, I probably watched this with my friends a lot in high school, whether it was sleepover or late night viewings. Um, you know, I certainly don't feel about it the way I once felt about it. And like I said, I certainly don't feel the way about Quentin Tarantino the way I, I felt about him uh, then. But I have to... I just I just bitched about him for a half hour. <laughs> I have to... With my I have to... Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's... I mean, he's, he's a weird guy and, he's, and he is a bit controversial. But I, I do... And I don't love... Uh, you know, his style was the right style for me at the time. He was what I needed at the time. <laughs> But now that I've gotten older and I've I've kind of moved past his uh, his style, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I can't say enough. Uh, you know, I almost have to thank him though because he yeah. really did. I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for him. So, for that, I have a lot of respect and uh, admiration in, for him in that way. Uh, I I don't know. I'd say three or four buckets of pizza. You know, I did enjoy it this time. It's been yeah. a long time since I've seen it. it. Like I said, it was a very bizarre walk down memory lane uh, in, in a different way than a lot of the other movies we've had. Because uh, perhaps no movie that we've done so far has been as influential on me in this way. Yeah. You know, there's certainly movies that were maybe as influential on me in different ways. Rocky being a movie that to this day is you know maybe my favorite movie of all time uh so it was an, it was an interesting trip yeah for I, me. I was actually quite excited about it because i hadn't seen it in 20 years i was like oh it's gonna be fun to revisit this and have all these memories and then watching the movie knowing the thing back to front and all that and, and having these moments that i'd completely forgotten and you know and then seeing it widescreen it occurring to me you know so it was it was it was a fun experience. I don't think I can go sit down and rewatch it like I did at one time. I watched the yeah, shit yeah. out of the thing, you know. Well, you know, uh, but it's like a movie like The Professional. Like I haven't seen Leon in like t- probably twenty years too. And it's like <laughs> it'd be great to sit down and yeah, it's weird yeah. to, to revisit these movies that you uh, and like the movie we might do next week. It's like a, you know, it's another movie I haven't seen in twenty years. But it's like it's great to revisit these hallmarks in our in our lives, and you remember how much they touched you. So. In, in in appropriate places as well, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, this is probably, yeah, three or four for me just for the nostalgia factor and just it being, you know, such a... It wasn't a huge influence in a sense, I guess, as for you, because I I knew some of the movies that these kind of reference. Yeah, but, but I, think, I think it was in a way that you don't even realize you know, it. You take, for instance, a... The, like a scene that you... Well, you take your movies, for instance. Yeah. And, and it's the scene you did... 
there was a scene that you shot, which was like, uh, you know, I was in and. Oh, uh, you're talking about the, yeah, yeah. the sound. Yeah. The, the, we had a, we had an assignment we, we had to do. Yeah. And yeah. we sat around oh, yeah. and it was, I mean, it was very much this. Oh, it was. I was dressed or you were dressed, who was who, but yeah, we were dressed like that. And I think it was a, it was a little ripoff. I mean, I, even. But there was like the scene of, you know, where it's like me and uh, Dan. Oh, and uh, Ari was his, maybe his name. I can't remember everybody that was in it. And, you know, there's a big, a lot of talk. You know, obviously, there was influences from, you know, they talk about, you know, they're talking about like Wait Until Dark. Yeah, that was a I big mean, a lot of, that. a lot of your, a lot of your stuff that back then in your youth, I think, had a lot of, had a lot. You may not have known it, but you were taking a lot from, you were inspired a lot by, by Quentin Tarantino. Yes. And these kinds but of But I, I don't think, I don't think, Reservoir specifically, yeah, I think yeah. Pulp Fiction had a bigger gas. I used, I shot for my high school senior uh, video class thing. I did a, the scene from True Romance, yeah, yeah, with uh, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, which I don't know how I got away with because I, you know, I, I had to put a disclaimer like I'm going by the script because that has a lot of the N word in it. Yeah, Again, yeah. Quentin Tarantino using that N word, <laughs> you know, and then I I show that as my uh, to get into college, and that was the the audition or whatever you call mm-hmm. that at the at the uh, interview that that they really picked up on and they liked. So he completely influenced me. But uh, this I was a big you know gangster fan. Yeah, yeah. So I had a lot of other movies. Certainly, as much as he influenced me with here, so much was uh, Martin Scorsese did sure, as well sure, yeah. at the time, or like a Brian De Palma, but. Uh, I think now looking back on it, this and Pulp Fiction probably hold the same kind of a level yeah, of because yeah. Pulp Fiction was huge at the yeah, time too, yeah. and that opened the door for me finding all this stuff. But yeah, well, yeah, you I know. mean, Pulp Fiction, like I said, that's the one that introduced a, me to this. But yeah. then, you know, looking at it from the perspective of like Pulp Fiction wouldn't have existed had this not yeah. existed. <laughs> and it's a, it's a whole. It's interesting, yeah, to look back at all the projects we did and, and the funness, and that they all have little homages to, to gangster stuff for Quentin Tarantino specifically. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, and it's fun, you know. It, it was, it was, a, it was a fun time to do. It it's was, a fun time. It was like more simple times, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it was a more simple because time, a lot of these sure. movies, I don't feel like that's what I'm learning from this podcast. Is when we go back and watch these movies. And I don't mean it in a disparaging way, but a lot of these movies were much more simpler. The plots yeah. are simpler. You don't need to have all this convoluted mess. You don't need to have... Because people are just... I don't know if they expect more now or they don't want... You know, you can't have movies slow. You can't... You know, you need to have quick pace, quick cutting. Yeah, yeah. You need to have a, a very nuanced or, or a unique idea. So it's... It's interesting. It's, anyway. it's really interesting. And the last thing to, to mention is that Madonna evidently... Got him a a CD, a like a virgin CD, and autographed it, saying it's not about her fucking; it's about love. At the beginning, what, what like a virgin is really about? <laughs> it's about love. It's not about big dicks. It's not about big dicks. It's not about Charlie Bronson and the Great Escape <laughs> digging tunnels. So, but um, yeah. So this really great well, well, lockdown I, memory of Lane. Yes, right? I want to thank everybody that's that ended up listening to, to the, the entire of, yeah <laughs> our huge walk down <laughs> that got to this line. point. This was a, a very a, a nostalgic podcast but you know in a what? very different way than our regular podcast. I gotta say, I do gotta say though it's we're, we're very much in a sen- sentimental time for us because it is the 20th anniversary coming up of us meeting. Yes. So this this twenty years ago, we were this was very much we were knee or waist deep into these movies. You know, getting uh, our senior year of high school, this was all we were watching. This and like Heat or like Casino or Goodfellas and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Yeah, and all those. yeah. So like when we go back and open that Pandora's box of uh, 
of memories of all this stuff. That's when we get the bleed over of what film school was to us and the time period and setting the table and, and unpacking the baggage of what independent films were in the 90s because people won't even... I just heard a couple weeks ago that, you know, when the 100th anniversary of the Titanic disaster and people, they put the Jim Cameron movie in the theater, they were audiences young enough they didn't know that that was based on a real yeah it was just completely work of fiction <laughs> they thought it was a re- yeah they thought it was a work of fiction that it's just a tragedy that that jim cameron came up with and it's, so it's like you have i wonder if there's just as much more ignorant people nowadays who may not even know about this stuff or reservoir oh, yeah, talk you know i mean so what they're into nowadays versus what it is yeah so but yeah i really enjoyed you know revisiting this and then i wonder when the next time i will revisit this if it'll be another 20 years it might be you know and then especially pulp fiction you know to revisit pulp fiction that'll be another one but uh it's certainly like the soundtracks i know them all back to front so oh it's, yeah yeah and all know. the all the clips all the like, it, dialogue clips yeah that you know and it's and it's i don't know if he's the first guy to do that but it's interesting that you have that i was first exposed to the pulp fiction soundtrack he's doing it there then when you go get the reservoir dog soundtrack he's doing it there you know, yeah. before Pope, so that was an active decision in his part, and I loved that. You know, and then you get that from on the from Dust Till Dawn soundtrack. And yeah, I never had the Four Rooms, but then you that goes into like Get Shorty and all those soundtracks, Hard Eight, all those movies in the '90s that had great banging soundtracks. All kind of owe him a debt of gratitude of that became a thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, having a little dialogue, and then you know, him and Scorsese had great soundtracks at the time. Yeah, yeah. So, but oh well. So, uh. We're now saying goodbye to winter, and we're we're firmly in the spring, mm-hmm. and we're we're, we're uh, moving towards the summer. And border, we have a lot of stuff in store. Border, <laughs> we have a lot of stuff. We got a lot of stuff in store. This is going to be, gonna be a, a fun summer. It's going to be a fun, fun summer. We're going to be sleeping over like crazy. Yeah, and you know, and it's going to be like this movie. Like I said, I knew this back to front, and it was like there was almost no prep for this movie. Yeah, you know, I was like, I don't need to do any prep. This I was almost like, I was like, I don't even know if we need to watch this. Movie. Yeah, that's how much it was like. So much so that you know, the, our podcast is longer than the movie actually was. You know, so it's like, well, it usually is. You know, so. And then I feel like there's a lot of movies coming up this summer, not to tease anything, but we may not have to watch them. <laughs> you know, there's a lot yeah. of ones we may know front to back, you know, certainly. It's going to be a fun yeah. summer. I'm very excited. Pulling uh, out, every week it's going to be, Jesus, another, it's another. It's been a fun year. Zinger, you know, and we're still going, so it's going to be fun, and we got everything going, and uh, we have our Facebook page, we have our Twitter page, we have uh, our various places you can get the podcast, we have our home page where we always have extras. Uh, with each posting, or we can you could stream it there live too, or or save it. Uh, right click save from there. If you there. can do us a favor, jump on. If you have time, yeah, jump on iTunes, rate and review the podcast. Apparently, this is a very big deal. You keep saying that. I the more know. ratings, people, and the, be- the, the, the like, the best, the better ratings, and the more people rate it. Apparently, it'll pop up for people that are looking at similar things. Yeah. Always tell a friend. So so it helps spread the word. Yeah. I think a lot of people on the Facebook page don't even know we have a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys do a podcast. <laughs> well, that's why we've incorporated the name in the Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers podcast in that thing. So if you, if, if anybody listening ever sees and you're friends with us on Facebook, if you see us put a posting up for the new podcast, maybe like it or share that so we can get the word out that not only do we put just pictures of old movies up, we do actually have to do a podcast. And we've been putting a lot of extras out. You know, last week uh, or two weeks ago, we had like the complete non-topic <laughs> 
of Saturday morning <laughs> sleepovers. We did like a, uh, a shipwrecks one, and then we did Titanic. And when we doing a lot of, we did movie lovers, we did movie yeah, yeah. fans, we did sleepovers. I'm hoping that guest overs. Yeah, I'm hoping to do some more guest overs. Sidecasts. I'm hoping to do some more crossover episodes with other podcasts that are like-minded yeah uh we'll see we'll see where the future takes us maybe we can get our friend mike morona to come over from uh, his uh um adventures of uh pete and danny or danny and pete to yeah to to to, to sleep over with his with his uh star wars uh um, what do you call it uh uh i was gonna say rough sack but his sleeping <laughs> bag you know and, and we can all you know, cuddle and chat. So it'd be fun. We got well, a big summer. Sun's coming up. I think it's time for us to let everybody go to sleep. Yeah, we gotta go to bed too. So. Yeah, <laughs> get late. Late, late, late. It's enough. Yeah. yeah when's it gonna end? When's it gonna end? <laughs> we bid you adieu. Yes. Farewell, Avita Zanes and Fraulein's. Later. <laughs>